Broadcasting from deep in the Eublifaris galaxy, on a small planet called Gekonia, east of the albino hills and south of the raging leucistic river, comes the one, the only, Gecko Nation Radio. Good evening, Gekonians, as Steve would say. I hope everybody's doing great tonight. Tonight is September 14th, 2014. And, uh, wow, the season's almost over. And uh, my females here stopped, pretty much stopped laying eggs, which is kind of like a good thing because uh, definitely need a break from building racks and setting up babies and up in my mealworms and all that stuff. It's getting crazy here. Uh, tonight we have a great show, and we're going to be mixing it up a little bit tonight. Uh, I am not going to be hosting the show tonight. I'm actually going to sit back and relax and take a mental break. And uh, the show is going to be hosted by none other than Tim Walton. And he's been my co-host every now and again, as you guys know. And I'm going to go ahead and bring on Tim. But before I do, I just want to mention to everybody that recently I ran a really cool contest on my Facebook page. And my, um, And, of course, it was just a excuse to get everybody to share the page and get some more likes and followers, you know how it works with Facebook. I figure I could either pay Facebook to promote or I could do something to give back to the community. So I did a contest on basically how many eggshells were in a large pretzel jar. And these are all eggshells from geckos that I hatched out here. And uh, so there was quite a few of them in there. Now, a bunch of you guys came close but nobody actually hit the exact amount, so I'm going to give it to the person. I'm going to give the prize to the person that got the closest to the actual amount. All right, so the actual amount of eggshells in the jar was 1,142, okay? Now, a few of you came really close, and I'm going to, say, I'm going to tell you who did. Uh, Jennifer Jewell came close at 1125. Ben Conception came close at 11.23. Heather from Airway Geckos came in at 10.77. Adam Berge came in at 10.31. And the person that came in the closest at 11.50 was Brett Justian. So, Brett, congratulations. You're going to win. And the prize is a really cool bandit cross from this season. A really nice-looking gecko. Um, of course, winner pays shipping. And, uh, you know, contact me on Facebook, and I'll send you pictures of the gecko uh, probably tomorrow, you know, after the show. I'm going to kind of be tired tonight, but we'll see. Just contact me on Facebook, uh, Brett, and we'll go from there. Uh, thank you, everybody, for participating and getting my page. I think almost 200 new likes, which is awesome. And uh, maybe in a couple of weeks we'll do something else. All right, I'm going to go ahead and bring on Tim, my co-host. Tim from Slice of the Jungle. You're live on Gecko Nation Radio. How are you, Tim? Good. How you doing, Steve? No, this is Dave. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dave. <laughs> I'm just okay. messing with you. Um, okay. Good evening, everybody. Uh, I hope everybody's uh, excited for the show tonight. We have a great guest, John Scarborough of Gecko Ball Reptiles. I'm sure just about all of our regular listeners are very familiar with some of John's animals and some of the great work he does with uh, some of the different leopard gecko species, subspecies, and some of the morphs that he works with. Tonight is September 14th, 
Sunday, and uh, we look forward to hearing from uh, from John this evening. Uh, as Dave said, he's going to be sitting back a little bit, and um, I'd also like to say that um, we are starting a new uh, contest format, um, or trying it out at least. Um, so go over to geckoforums.net and go to the contest forum uh, thread, and uh, I'll be posting up in a couple minutes here um, uh, a new thread uh, about the show, a little bit about the show. And tonight, John has uh, donated a $50 credit um, to, towards one of his animals. And awesome. uh, I guess we'll be picking out next week who the winner is. And um, you can, as I said, you can go to the contest forum thread on geckoforums.net to learn more. And, uh, Dave, you want to play the uh, sponsor plug? Sure. Just a couple more announcements real quick. Just want to let everybody know. Uh, uh, our, a bunch of our sponsors usually have regular discounts for our listeners. Just mention Gecko Nation Radio, and they're likely going to take care of you. But just so you know, there's standard uh, coupon codes for 80 Dragons. The code is GECKO, all in caps. You're going to get 5% off your Dubia Roaches. And until September 30th, Keith Kiggins over at GiantLeopardGecko.com is giving 20 or 25% off any purchase, which is huge uh, if you're ordering a couple of nice size, you know, nice price geckos. Go over to GiantLeopardGecko.com. The code for that is GNR2014. It's good until September 30th. Um, let's see, what else? Oh, uh, Reptiles Express. Use RE Rocks, and you're going to uh, get a discount over there. So uh, the code is REROCKS, all in caps. So if you need to ship some animals, take advantage of that too. And I think it's good for a few times. All right. And let's see, what else? I think that's it. But I'm going to go ahead and play the sponsor plug, and we'll be right back. King Titans. These sponsors are awesome. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Reptiles Express is the absolute best live animal shipping company with great low rates. Debbie is the queen of customer service and will make sure your precious cargo gets to where it needs to. They also have a wide array of shipping supplies from deli cups, snake bags, heat packs, and more. Visit reptilesexpress.com and become a member today. Longhorn Geckos is a father and son collaboration. Daryl and Kate Burton specialize in the best supertangelos, pastel raptors, white and yellows, and really nice wild types. Follow them on Facebook at Longhorn Geckos and on their new website coming soon. Ohio Gecko is famous for amazing tangerines, snows, and other very unique leopard gecko projects. Thad also has some incredible fat tail morphs available from stingers to starbursts. Visit him online at ohiogecko.com and at expos in the northeast. He is also the owner of geckoforums.net. Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more. And all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. 
contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or it can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. And that's right, folks. And I just want to mention some exciting news. Um, Jason White from Daily Reptile News has come out of hibernation, or maybe it's brumation. I don't know. We'll have to find out. But uh, he's back in action, and I spoke with him today. Very happy to have him and his energy back in the community. Uh, So welcome back, Jason. I see him in the chat room. Football, you guys can check him out on YouTube, Daily Reptile News is huge, and uh, I think Jason's going to make it even bigger. So um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, bring Tim back. And, um, Tim, what do you say we play the uh, – tell everybody where to go. Where where do we want everybody to go, Tim? We want everybody to go to geckoforums.net and the uh, contest post that I I mentioned earlier is live in the contest forum. So go there to to post up, and uh, you'll be entered into the – contest tonight for a $50 credit to Gecko Boa Reptiles. That's right. And also, I, I guess I don't have to play the plug because we pretty much mentioned everything, but I also want to mention that um, if you guys like reptile radio or if you're the type of person that just likes to listen to talk radio and has an interest in herpetoculture uh, and you have free time on your hands and you're up cleaning cages all night like I am or whatever and you need something cool to listen to, check out Herpentine Radio. They're also on Block Talk. JD and Justin do an awesome job, and they are basically my inspiration uh, to do this radio show. Well, Herpentine and Coast to Coast AM kind of inspired me to get into radio. So uh, check them out, folks. And uh, Tim, I'm going to go ahead and give the show over to you now. And uh, you feel uh, feel confident? You ready to uh, ready to do it? I'm ready to go. Um, I'd right. like to announce that uh, next week we'll be having on Mike Lehman who is the owner of the Gourmet Rodent in Florida. They are, uh, for anybody that's not familiar with them, they're a huge supplier of uh, rodents, but also reptiles. Uh, They supply Petco um, um, with many, but I don't believe all of the reptiles that you see at at Petco's, Um, but they do produce a very large number of leopard geckos and other colubrids. Uh, as well as ball pythons and many other different species uh, that we see in herpetoculture. Um, They do a lot of captive breeding, uh, but they also do also import animals. Um, Mike is the new owner. He's not the person who started the gourmet rodent, Um, but if anybody's listened to the show before, I'm not sure if I've mentioned it, but I actually used to work uh, for the gourmet rodent prior to Mike uh, working there, and and now, uh, as I said, Mike has taken over ownership of the company. Um, I'd also like to mention, um, when we talk about, you know, purchasing geckos from places like Petco, there's absolutely nothing wrong with a healthy 
gecko from a pet store. Um, but just what we talk about is that you can't go to a place like Petco to, to buy the best breeder leopard geckos um, for a project. If, if you want a very specific project, you, you really should go seek out you know, people like John Scarborough and, and Dave and, and Marsha and Ron and all and Matt and all these people that have worked years and years refining uh, a certain type of, of leopard gecko. And it, just as Ron always talks about on the show, um, it's, it's just like breeding dogs and how the different uh, types of dogs have, have been bred for, for very certain traits and characteristics is exactly what's going on with leopard geckos but with leopard geckos we it's just it's just starting it's it's in its infancy even though you know some people might say we've been breeding these in captivity for 40 years but um but really the the morphs and more standards as we were talking about last week on the show are just getting started and uh if you want to be a part of that you don't want to just get a mixed heritage gecko to start off with. But at the same time, if you're learning, there's nothing wrong with, with breeding geckos from Petco. Um, we just want newcomers to understand that you, you're not really going to buy a couple geckos of Petco and sell them for the prices that people like Dave and, and John and Matt and Ron and Marsha get for their geckos that they've been breeding for generations and generations. I just wanted to, uh, to make that clear because I know sometimes I didn't want it to come off that, that we kind of bash Petco geckos. Um, but also at the same time, I want to mention that Mike Lehman, I'm sure um, now as much as they did when I worked for the Gourmet Rodent, they really try to provide the healthiest geckos um, to Petco and uh, we and they they can't really control the way Petco keeps their geckos. I'm sure they they work on um, husbandry practices with Petco to uh, to get the healthiest geckos into the hands of the customers. And that might not always happen, but that's definitely something we're going to talk about on the show. So uh, be sure to tune in. And uh, Dave, you can go ahead and bring Steve on, and we'll uh, we'll see what Steve has going on. Good evening, Gekonians. How you doing, Steve? How's it going, Jim? Pretty good. It's good to talk to you. Uh, tell us what's new in your collection up there. Uh, not too much. I just picked up a, a 1,100-gram cinnamon ball python female, so I'm psyched about that. That's pretty cool. And what are you going to be breeding her to? I'm not sure yet, actually. <laughs> I just I didn't have a cinnamon, so I had to, I had to get it. Couldn't pass it up. <laughs> you you needed a new spice in your in your pantry. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. What's uh, what's going on in the news this week? All right, we're gonna head right to Nampa, Idaho, where police report a large snake is on the loose. Nampa police are looking for a missing nine-foot Colombian 
red-tailed boa named Trinity, who escaped Saturday from its plexiglass cage. It was last last seen at 4 p.m., and police said, if you see the snake, please do not attempt to apprehend. So, of course, we can never go without a escaped snake in the news. Yeah, and, and right off the bat, just from the headline, the, uh, the plexiglass cage... Uh, Sound yeah. suspect. <laughs> yeah. Yes, especially a nine foot boa is pretty strong. Alright. Then we'll head to to California in Lake Merritt where a a biker found a biker is as in biking, not a motorcycle biker, but <laughs> found the number 93 on the world's 100 most invasive species. Can you take a guess on what that was? A- any guess at all in the, in the chat room? What What's the 93rd 100 invasive species? There's only two reptiles on the list that I saw. Uh, I'm sorry, Steve. You're asking what's, what's the, the number what? one? No, the the ninety third. What do you think they found? It's a. I'll give you a, a clue. It's a turtle they found that's an invasive species in California. Uh, I think I have a guess for that one. All right, Jason White got it. <laughs> Red-eared slider was found in California, and. Uh, it's native to much of the mid, mid to south central United States and is an invasive species in California, Oregon, Washington, and many other states. And what's cool is I researched a little more on this and I found uh, a website, Global Invasive Species Database. That's pretty cool. And you can look at the most, 100 most invasive species in the world. And the number one is actually just a shrub on that. And I'm going to post the link to that right now in the chat room so people can check out the 100 World's Most Invasive Species. I thought it was Steve, pretty cool. Steve, you should also post that over in geckoforums.net. All right, we could do that too. So, and then heading to our last story of the night, which is has to do with HSUS. It's been a rough year for the Humane Society of the United States, which, despite its name, runs zero pet shelters and gives only 1% of its budget to local pet shelters, which a lot of us knew that. HSUS settled a federal racketeering and bribery lawsuit for up to 157 million dollars saw its charity rating revoked by charity navigator the nation's largest charity evaluator and then the oklahoma attorney general scott pruitt announced that his office is opening an inquiry into the fundraising of hsus now a tennessee state legislature wants her state's attorney general to investigate hsus State Representative Sheila Butt recently called on Tennessee Attorney General Robert Cooper Jr. to join the inquiry and issue a consumer alert against HSUS. 
She cites the well-documented fact that the public mistakenly believes HSUS is an umbrella group for local pet shelters, and the HSUS has an anti-agricultural agenda. So HSUS is uh, really getting nailed lately. That's good. <laughs> they definitely de- they definitely deserve it. Very cool. And that was our last story of the night. Well, uh, Steve, thank you very much. It was a great job as as always. Uh, and um, thanks for uh, for doing the the video for John this week. It was it was a good one. And I look forward to uh, to next week's. All right, great. All right, Steve. Take care. You too. Well, uh, that was a great little news segment. Thanks again, Steve. And uh, I'd like to bring John on. We'll get started with the interview. John, do we, do are you on the line? Tim, how's it going? Hello? Good. Uh, Dave's slacking over there, I think. <laughs> What's going on, Dave? Hello. Can you hear me? I got you, John. Sorry about that. Okay, cool. How's it going? Um, pretty good. It's good to talk to you. I don't uh, I don't believe we've spoken before other than uh, on email, um, but uh, I'd like huh. to uh, to hear you talk a little bit about um, how you got into reptiles. I know um, in the past on the show you spoke about how you did, um, you know, how you, how you came to work with boas and leopard geckos, but uh, I don't believe you've actually spoken about how you got into reptiles. Um, well, I mean, I, I can't even remember when I wasn't into reptiles, to be honest. You know, it's uh, I know I'm going to say the cliche uh, thing that I used to catch lizards when I was young, but that's pretty much... How it how it happened, you know. I I was pretty much obsessed with anything that had to do with animals in general. So I mean, I um, a couple things. I like, you know, when I was younger, I actually my dad had a koi pond in the backyard, and I actually, you know, was breeding koi for a little while. It was kind of never went anywhere, but it was for you know just my love of animals, the same thing. And I built a couple more ponds in our backyard at that time. And I mean, there's I, I've just been in there animals my entire life. I can't remember a time when I didn't have either a dog or I think when I was younger I had four birds and I had, you know, three or four dogs at one point and, you know, a couple snakes and um, your assortment of backyard lizards in, in a terrarium. And uh, it's just always been, it's always been a passion of mine. You know, I, I think at a young age I was introduced to them from, um, one of my sisters, um, she she really kind of showed me that, you know, a snake is not so scary after all. And from a very young age, I mean, I have a picture. I don't even remember taking the picture, but I have a picture of me holding, it looks to be probably a six or seven foot boa. And, you know, I don't even remember the picture, but it's such a young age that, I mean, I was just introduced to them from, from that point on. And, you know, if you're not introduced to them from, you know, your parents or whatever is, seen something dangerous you really don't see it that way it's kind of just something that is ingrained in people that they're scared of these things and you know to me a lizard was just awesome but you know a snake was just the ultimate goal like if i could catch a snake in california that would have been 
my life dream at that age. So, <laughs> but uh, kept kept reptiles, and you know, I had various. I had a water snake, I had ball python, I had um, a few different lizards and stuff as I was younger, and uh, I kind of got out of it during the college years. I didn't really have the time for it. Um, I still had dogs and other animals, but not really so much into the reptiles. And then later on, I got into, I was given a boa constrictor, actually, and just kind of fell back in love with it. And the rest is history pretty much from there. But, yeah, just kind of ingrained into me. It's just one of those things I don't think I'll ever get to a point where I could not own a reptile at least or at least have a few, if not hundreds. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you have more than a few now, right? Yeah, it's, it's kind of gotten out of hand. I mean, it's it's fun for sure, you know, but it's definitely it's definitely it's it's a lot of work, especially this time of year. This is the time of year when it's really gotten, you know, it's one of those things where you got to really you got to love what you're doing to to stay with it, you know. And I, I work with quite a few different species now, and I work with you know some various things. And obviously a lot of leopard geckos, so it's it's definitely you got to be on it, you know, and you got to have your schedule, and you got to be, uh, you know, I've always worked jobs where I work for somebody else, so getting that type of job where you're you got to do it yourself and be self motivated, that's that's been a little bit of a challenge, but you know, so, sometimes when my animals aren't fed, I can't even sleep at night, so I'll just go down and feed them. <laughs> Luckily, I, I have that attitude about it, and I can keep up on it. And, and also, luckily, you got a short commute to the office there, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, I don't know if I will ever get an off-site facility. You know, it's, uh, it's one of those things where you kind of just have to be be there to really, you know, it's it would just be so difficult if I had to drive in to go somewhere. But then at the same time, I think about it, too, and I'm I'm just like, maybe if I drove in, I'd be forced to go and stay there for a longer period of time rather than always having, you know, the TV or distractions upstairs to, you know, kind of get me away from it. But, yeah, it's, you know, I, I like I like having it on site, and I think I always will. You know, I have, I have goals for the future and not to be in a basement-type situation, even though my basement is huge and it works out great. It's just I kind of want my own facility i don't want to be massive like a massive you know beer that's pumping out tons of reptiles every year but you know i kind of kind of like to have that space too it's frustrating when you get a little tight and you know the quarters get cramped yes definitely and and uh going back to what you were saying earlier i think what a lot of uh, newcomers don't see as um as something that when this when this is a business and not just a hobby is there are many, many, many different jobs, and it's never ending when you when you breed animals for a living. Um, they, you know, taking photographs and, and posting um, for sale ads online is a is an entire job on its own. You know, taking you know answering the emails and and questions and taking orders is an entire job on its own. You know, feeding the animals. And uh, you know, and taking care of the animals, and, and breeding the animals, and raising up babies is is kind of the fun part that we all think about when uh, when we have dreams or aspirations of of becoming a professional breeder. But uh, there's really so much more that goes into it. And um, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, 
were there any species that you produced this year for the first time? Um, yeah, I've, I've produced a few um, for sure. Um, it's kind of sticking with leopard geckos. I produced uh, uh, Elam province. Actually, did I produce Elam first year? It might be my second year, but Elam province Ingramania is, uh, I think, a first for this year. Um, I produced Eblepharis uh, fuscus for the first time this year. Um, a few odds and ends. Let's see. Goniosaurus splendens. Um, I produced Pachydactylus atraquatus. I think I'm saying that right. <laughs> some of these, some of these lab names, you know. Even I, I've, I've acquired a few species. And it's like you, your best guess is to figure out what they, what they, how the pronunciation goes. So I do my best on it, but. I think everybody knows in the hobby. There's no no shame in being a little lucky on the Latin names, but um, yeah, <laughs> Pachydactylus, Atraquatus, and then I have uh, uh, Tenopus, uh, Grulus maculatus, um, which is a really cool species, actually. Um, as far as new stuff, that might be it. I probably have a couple others there here and there, but. Um, I think that's it for 2014. I mean, I'm, I hope to produce a lot more of the other stuff this next year. I've kind of increased my species load a lot this this in last year. So, you know, I, I breed quite a few leopard geckos, and I have the wild types that, you know, different species than those that I've produced in the past. But, um, yeah, in the future, I hope to, I hope to have quite a few more, you know, and, it, I, I'm kind of coming with this conflict whether I should, you know, go more into the different obscure species out there or if I should just kind of focus on what I want to do. Like the, the hobbyist side of me just wants to keep buying more and more species and just keep going and going, even though it's probably not the, you know, on a business side of it, if I really want to not use all my money, if I ever want to, you know, buy another house, I probably should probably cut it down a little bit, but... You know, that's just the way, you know, we're victims of our, you know, our nature <laughs> in a way. Well, and that's don't, don't make it too far because of that in a way. So. And, and that's also exactly another uh, another dilemma um, of, uh, of hobbyists turning into professionals in this industry is, uh, you know, you, you want what you want to do and, and when you, when it becomes a profession, you have to also think about, you know, the, the customer base. And um, have you uh, – and tell us a little bit about some of the um, the cool project, leopard gecko projects that um, you had going on this year in terms of morphs. Uh, well, I have all kinds of really interesting things. You know, I, I go down a lot of roads trying to experiment with things, and I don't take, you know, some some breeders, which is not, this is not a bad thing, by the way. This is kind of a disclaimer is that, you know, this is a good approach if you're you're starting off is to kind of take things from certain breeders and, you know, maybe keep the lines together and not, not really experiment too much. Because a lot of times when you're crossing things, you're going to, you're not going to get the best results. And trust me, I cross things all the time and I'm just like, eh, it didn't work out too well. So I, I move on, you know. I also have a mentality that I don't want to produce the same thing that, you know, the, every other breeder's produced already in a way. You know, to me, that's besides never having anything new. It's just boring to me. You know, I like – the biggest excitement for me is to get in an incubator and there's, like, something completely different than I've ever seen before. And it's hard to get me 
you know, really excited when I see something in an incubator. But there's always, you know, a couple each year now where I just am like, wow, I kind of stepped it up on this, you know, in this level. And, I mean, I don't use – I don't really market myself as well as I probably should. I don't really push it as hard. I really try to I'm, – I'm, maybe I'm too honest about things. I try to keep things so honest that, you know, I don't want to push a new more for something or that I don't really feel is something that I don't – think is you know something that that is real or that is really something that deserves a new name or whatever but a lot of times i feel like i feel like uh you know a lot of the stuff i'm producing I'm, i mean i'm trying to stay humble here but a lot of stuff i honestly think is pretty cutting edge on you know where this hobby's going in the future and that's what excites me about it you know everybody I get a lot of grief from people, like, because I, I do a lot of the wild types and the obscure stuff, and I get some grief from people about, oh, why you do those, you know, morph leopard geckos, or that's just like, you know, there's, there's kind of like a real, um, some people just feel it better in a way just because they work with obscure stuff and different things. And, you know, I love that side of the hobby. I love working with all the really obscure stuff. You know, my dream would be to be the next John Boone in a way, you know, but I don't know if I could do it. I don't know how he even does it, but, you know, somebody like that would be a dream to me, you know, not not thinking that I could or that I'd actually end up doing that, but it's there, there's that side of it where you have all these obscure things, and I really love the leopard gecko wild types, and, you know, I, I, I think I'm at the front of that part of the, the section of the hobby. I do a lot of research on these things. I, you know, figure out, I really don't want to be keeping wild types that are not really, you know, pure. You know, I'm, I'm a very, I'm very much a purist in that sense, you know, which is strange because I love the morphs too. So, um, you know. I definitely, I definitely know what you're talking about. There is definitely a, a bit of a, a divide in the, in the hobby of, um, people that are in, interested in, in the rare stuff and then people that are interested in just the common leopard gecko and different leopard gecko morphs. And, uh, yeah, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that either. I mean, it's yeah. really, I, I, I enjoy that side. I really like the, you know, I, I've really recently started working on the Goniosaurus and it's really a species that, uh, a genus that I really enjoy actually. Um, I've been wanting to get some for a long time, and I've always held off. I was always feeling like my temperatures were too hot, and I finally just, you know, got an air conditioner for one of the rooms in my basement and just looked for it. And I'm really happy that I did. You know, it's very, very simple species to keep. You know, there's a lot of other things that are so much more difficult than those. And, you know, they're really, they're just cool. They're really just, a, you know, cave geckos are going to be one of the future things that people are going to really go for. And it's, you know, a simple species to keep. And it's they're really awesome looking. They have different, so many different colors and you know phases and their phenotype, and it's just they're, they're they're pretty amazing. And they, I mean, they keep finding species. I mean, there's a lot more research being done with them, which allows for more species to be found all the time. And there's been some recently that have been just found. And I mean, it's an exciting thing when when you know you have that you know pumping into the hobby. But yeah, it's you know it's just. It's one of those things, like, I, I understand that side of the hobby, but I also understand the morphs, and, I mean, it really keeps the, the incubator action much more exciting when you have all sides coming, you know. I have these pure wild types that I, I really enjoy, and then I have, you know, um, all the different species, 
like the obscure stuff that, you know, a lot of it I got from John Billy, to be honest, you know, and I kind of trust him as far as where things come from and different. They're just fun to work with in that sense. I don't really, I haven't made a dime off of any of that kind of stuff, but, you know, it's just something that keeps the break of um, the leopard gecko monotony and just kind of keeps the, the breakup going, you know. I kind of have that little side thing that I can do, and it keeps my hobby, my interests going. So, I mean, when you're cleaning, you know, five, 500 six-quart tubs every five or six days, it just gets to the point where you, you need a break from that kind of stuff. So, um, But, yeah, all sides of it are fun, and just that's the key to keep interest at this level is just to really keep everything fun and really be still excited about it and still doing research and you know, it's uh, it's tough to keep on top of everything, but at the same time, it's, it's the challenge that makes it fun. And and I think uh, one of uh, John Boone's uh, secrets, or uh, a, a something that a lot of people might not realize, is I, I think his his kids help him out a lot. Um, <laughs> they're uh, young teenagers now, and uh, or teenagers, and when you know he goes away on trips all over the world, studying. Uh, crazy gecko species that people have never heard of or probably will never hear of. Uh, he's got, you know, some some good able bodies at home uh, watching over his collection and allowing yeah, him to yeah. uh, to take those trips. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing what he does and all that stuff. And, I, I mean, I, I feel like a beginner when I talk to him, to be honest. I, I give him much respect. And, you know, he's he's been keeping more species than I've uh, I can have right now since before I was even born, I believe. So, you know, it's not everybody, you know, might not, not everybody might not like him, but, you know, at the same time, you kind of give the guy respect. It's just amazing all the stuff he does and, you know, all these travel, this trips and traveling that he does. That's, that's what I would love to do. I mean, if I could go to, if I could go to, I mean, my goal my really dream would be to go to Iran, Syria, and all these countries that are just so war-torn right now that it's just impossible. But I would just, you know, die to go to these countries to see the things that I study so much and really figure out a little bit more about them. And, you know, Pakistan and India. And I, I sit there and I study the maps and I study where people see different animals and we try to figure out things just by pictures. And, I mean, just to actually be there would be a dream for me, but... You know, it's not going to be anytime soon where, you know, a six foot four redheaded, you know, guy from America is going to go to Syria. So, <laughs> not possible at this point. But you know, someday hopefully that can change. So we'll see. Yep, and also uh, maybe that by that time your son will be old enough to uh, watch over your collection <laughs> for you. Exactly. Well, I I don't want to push it on him in a way. I, I you know it's going to be obviously in the states from his from his. Uh, young age so he likes what means he's got you know his his mom and me both are both are big animal lovers you know and she uh she actually got me into the the leopard geckos themselves so you know i just go to the show like he's got the he's got the genetics for it that's for sure so but i I want him to find it on his own he likes things that i like too i mean i play drums and it's amazing how much the two-year-old and love playing drums, but he's he's on it, you know, constantly. The second we let him out of his little corral, he, he goes running for the drum set. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's one of those things. Hopefully, he wants to do that kind of stuff. But yeah, I won't push it on him. But. A little rock and roller, or, or you can get up to the size of uh, of Mike Lehman's 
business and you can have an army of employees <laughs> working for you. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, it, that seems really awesome when you're when you're first starting off, kind of, and I would have probably thought that years ago, but, you know, now at this point, that doesn't sound very awesome to me. That just makes it all business and no fun to me in a way. I mean, there's, there's a fun side of it, too, to the business side of it, and you do produce a lot more animals, and there's a cool, there's a definitely a cool thing about it, and there's, I'd probably rather work there than, you know, any of the big corporations, but at the same time, that I really, if I can keep it at a, a smaller level and, you know, be somewhat successful and at least finance my life and my hobbies, that would be my goal. You know, I don't want to get an army of employees and just be te- become the customer service rep behind the computer and, you know, because you lose, I mean, besides, you know, losing the fun of it, there's also something that you get lost in, you know, the morphs and genetics and, you know, you you keep them, and you have to be there and see them every week. Every time a hatchling, you know, the the next time you see them, every time you look at them, they look different. They have a different color, you know, or a different pattern. And it's almost like you get surprised every time you see them. And in a way, the the the, the feeding and constant work is hard. But you know, if I didn't have that, I wouldn't be seeing those animals every week. You know, so and, and that's and that's your payoff for all your hard work is. Uh, you know, is seeing those those cool little hatchlings uh, mature into uh, juveniles and, and and adults, and then starting all over and seeing their babies. Um, I'd like to talk to you now about um, your purple bloods that I've I've seen you post a couple pictures of. Um, they are something that's definitely, I believe, unique. I've I've never seen another breeder um, post any um, you know tangerines with the colors that you're popping out. Um, tell us a little bit about um, about that line that you're working with. Um, well, I I can't take all credit for that one actually. I mean, I wish I could, but um, I have a a friend. Um, oh man, I can't. I'm running a blank on his name right now. He's probably gonna hate me. Um, <laughs> anyway, it's uh, the owner of Sin City Geckos, which at the time, you know, they they worked with a few leopard geckos. They were a breeder in Las Vegas. Um, has the, the name Sin City, um, but I, I I always see him as, as Nathan. I'm sorry, he's Nathan from Sin City Gecko. So basically, Nathan was working with uh, a few different lines of uh, leopard geckos, but his main uh, you know, like his highlight of his collection was his bloods that he was working with, and I'd always see him at the shows in California when I was out there, and it was just you know some of the stuff that he had was amazing as it was. And then towards the end, he started popping out some just ridiculous-looking, like, dark-looking, purpley tangerines um, from his blood bloodline. I mean, it was all pure bloods. He bought them from JMG. He bought, like, pretty much the nicest stuff JMG released, I think, in 2008 and 2009. So he, he got them from JMG, and they were pretty much the best ones that the Haygoods let go at that time. So, um, not... Um, so when he, uh, um, uh, what was I uh, when he, uh, when he left, he, he was bringing us to the show and everybody was just amazed by them. Um, I'm sorry. It was not Hager. That's what I was thinking. It was, uh, Gail was, <laughs> I was getting confused with all the breeders names, but, um, yeah. And I just see these things that are awesome. And I got to a point where, you know, 
it was after I moved, but I hit him up and I was like, hey, man, do you have any of those, some of those dark purplish bloods? Because I had some bloods too that were popping out some darker stuff too, and he was always contacting me about that. But um, he he's like, you know what, oh, man, I got this severe meal one allergy. I just can't take it anymore. I'm probably going to just, you know, unload my entire collection. He won everything. And so I bought him out at that point because I knew he had all that stuff in there. And, you know, it, it, I got a, some of the stuff was was stuff I just resold and, you know, kept for a while and made sure it was good to go and I resold. But then a lot of that stuff, like, the, I really bought it for those bloods. And at that point, um, he, had, he had a line that came from that dark stuff, and he called it the per- dark purple. He, he called it the dark purple line, I guess. And I just kind of shortened it to purple blood. So, I mean, it's. They really, you know, you've seen a couple of those. Some of them just come out. Just, I mean, that color doesn't, isn't going to hold like that, like any younger um, juvenile gecko forever, or it's not going to be as strong as they are when they're juveniles like that, but they definitely carry that into adulthood a little bit, you know, and it's definitely something there. I mean, it, it it's kind of crazy when they're young. It's just like they really are purple. It's even your face purple. So, yeah, they're they're – you know, the cool thing is they are pure blood. They've been line bred for years and years. I, you know, I haven't tested every single female that I have for heads, but you know, it's it's one of those things that's been there for since about 2008, being line bred and sold as pure at that time. So, you know, I I'm always a skeptic about that kind of stuff, and I make sure that my stuff is clean. But same time, that I'm very confident about that. It's about as confident as you can possibly be. Um, you know, without you know, isolating every female out and test breeding it against every recessive. So uh, it's, a, it's a clean line, and it's pretty awesome in person. And, oh, I'm holding back some few females this year, and hope to, hopefully next year I'll have some of, some of the nicer ones available. So. Well, that's cool. And, um, you know, like you said, you didn't uh, really pioneer the work with them, but at least, um, you know, being on the show, you're – and announcing it like you did, you're you're documenting the the history of the line, and uh, that's yeah. definitely something we we look we look to try to uh, get down to have um, on the show. Yeah, and, I don't need um, to take credit for it. They're they're cool. You know, he did he did a lot of work. I mean, it, it, the work came from Jeff at JMG originally. I mean, I'm sure he got his blood or his tin drain line somewhere else too. So I mean, it, it goes down the line. I mean, I didn't do most of the work and. It doesn't matter to me, and you know, if I had an ego, I'd care about it. But to me, it's just just a cool animal, so might as well just say what it is. Awesome. Um, any other, um, you know, cool babies that you'd like to talk to talk about that uh, was stuff that you didn't expect that maybe uh, is going to spark a new project? Um, yeah, there's a, there's a few things, but probably one thing I'd want to probably get out on the air and I, I kind of posted a few animals on my website already but um are these these firebolts that I'm working with now and I didn't come up with this name if people are thinking that I, I pretty much don't come up with na- new names for the most part I, I don't try to do that too often but you know these I think they well deservingly need a name for themselves and I got them from a breeder in Europe um, named Philo and he He'd been working on these, and he'd worked uh, different bold lines into them and tangerine lines, um, some including, like, Afghan tangerines. And I got a couple of animals from him last year, 
and I'm hoping to continue the project, you know, and I bred them into, I mean, the male, the, the animals I'm getting are just unbelievable. They, a lot of people are trying to do this cross between tenderings and bulls, and, you know, some of them are working. I actually, I actually do like, uh, like Ray's line of those somewhat, um, but I think these have just taken a new, to a new level. You know, he's worked on them, just had more years to work on them, and they have, there's something about, I think, that Afghan tangerine in there that just, you know, which Afghan tangerines that people don't know come from the ultimate geckos or ultimate geckos in, in Europe. So they, that combination with the bulls and the Afghan tangerines and the different tangerine lines, I mean, he just hit on something just unbelievable. So um, he had he had some holdbacks that he kept, and I, I think I, I pretty much got his holdbacks from the prior year, which... I mean, they're phenomenal as it is. So I crossed them into, you know, bandits. I crossed them into quite a few things, but um, rainbow bandits, I sold a couple of those. Um, I mean, one of the most awesome geckos that I've ever produced was that crossed into an Afghan tangerine that was – this Afghan tangerine is pretty amazing as it is. It's bright yellow with a kind of a bold stripe on it as as it is. So and some people might remember this picture from my Facebook page, but – I crossed that that firebolt into that line. So, I mean, going forward, I think this is this is going to be a big thing going forward. It's it's line bread, which is great. You know, I like line breads a lot, um, just because you know you can you can just improve and improve on them. And I have a pretty diverse line of them, and almost everything you cross it into, you know, similar colors or even bandits and stuff. Yeah, I mean, you get amazing results just crossing into any bull or bandit put it into. So um, probably my most exciting leopard gecko project for the year um, going forward. But um, I, I, there's other things too. I, I like line bud stuff. I work with a lot of morphs, just kind of a lot of it's just for test breeding and stuff. But, you know, line bud stuff is really cool. So tangerines, bandits, and now these fireballs are really going to be a lot of the stuff that I, I really want to focus on and go forward with. Where um where did you say we could see a picture of those? Actually, I'm not uh I don't think I've seen those pictures. Um, I posted a recent uh, picture of of uh, Rainbow Bandit Firebolt Cross on my Facebook page, and then if you go down, there's actually a I think I posted it. I posted a picture. It was on one of the replies. I posted the father of that animal, so you can kind of see like where they're going there. And then also, I didn't say it at the time, but my profile picture, the actual little um, default picture, is my is a fire the one that's the fireball cross to the Afghan um, tenderine. And I mean that that it's a male, and I'm holding it back, but it's just. It's just an unbelievable color, just bright, bright yellow and bright, you know. It's, it's just, just I, I can't even explain it in person. It looks cool in the picture, but it's just even even more awesome, you know, in person. <laughs> but I, yeah. I posted that back a little bit farther, and it's I, the full shot of that animal. But you can see the, the, the picture on my profile pic is that animal, too. So. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a really cool uh animal and and uh and I see the firebolts now too the 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 one you you posted uh it's uh it's posted on September 9th if anybody else is checking it out um 
I, I agree, John. I, I definitely like the uh, those crosses and the and the the line bread traits. I think are um, definitely, you know, they hold they hold a price better. And like you said, they just get better and better. And it, you know, not that a lot of us do this. You know, you're not making a fortune doing it, doing it for a living. Um, but um, it is really cool. You know, your hard work year after year. And you just will get to see, if you're working with something like this, you just get to see that year after year just getting better and better, selectively breeding these animals. And I think that's something that gets overlooked by um, by newcomers because uh, they really look, you know, short-term and don't, don't think about, um, you know, what they're going to be doing in a few years from now. And, uh, and if you're really serious about getting into something, you, you could get a, a – you know, a few geckos um, from several different breeders and really start out your own project. And the first couple of years, you know, you might not see, you know, the the results you're looking for. But if you keep at it year after year, you'll really get to see some incredible stuff. And um, it, what other uh, projects are you excited about, John? Um. But yeah, I was going to say too that you know you're exactly correct on that. It's it's one of those things you know this is not something that everybody's going to be able to do, and I mean it's it's not yet exactly you're not going to make a fortune off of it. But it's I worked the corporate grind for a long time, and I went through this. You know, I was in business school, and um, you know, went went into corporate world, and you know, just happiness in what you do is just much more important. So even if you're not going you know, to obviously be a celebrity or, or whatever it is, just find something you really enjoy because you can't, you can't, you know, there's nothing that's better than that. Even if you make less money or whatever, you're not going to be a millionaire. It's, it's happiness. It's your life. It's one time that you live it, you know, and it's, it's one of the things that I was wasting away my life where I was and I was so unhappy and lifely. Literally, I had a house and I had everything I wanted, but I just didn't, you know, I'd go to work all day long, get up at five in the morning, get back at eight, and I was in shed, and I had no life at all. And then it was just living for the weekend to go do something somewhat fun, but I was so tired even then that I kind of just sat around and prepared for the next week, you know. So, I mean, even if you're making less money, do whatever, you know, you, that makes you happy and keeps you, you know, and doesn't doesn't wear away your life, you know. The way I yeah. I, like, I, I lost years of my life just working with corporate, but you know, it's, it's, it, in a way, it made me a lot stronger. If I would have just gone into doing this, you know, it, there, I definitely probably wouldn't work because I didn't have the business side of it so much, and I definitely didn't have the work ethic, uh, work ethic that I probably would have if I had done all that. Um, Actually, so John, yeah, I mean, be- I, go ahead. Before uh, before you move on, sorry to interrupt you. Um, I actually just sort of another question about the, the Firebolt Rainbow Bandits. Um, tell us uh, what, you know, what you're working towards now that, that you've bred some of these. What are some of the things that you're looking for that you want to refine in, in that line? Well, uh, it's, it's kind of, in that one picture, I, I posted one in the, in the chat there that's kind of one of my nicest ones. I have a couple younger ones that I think are going to be better than that one, but I mean, that's kind of what I was looking for. And, I mean, it's just, you know, getting better, just a better example of that. And the yellow in that animal, which is probably a lot from that Afghan and um, the tendering lines that were used by Ultimate Geckos, they they really 
just make it pop. It's just like bright and in your face. I like the dark tangerine look and the really like muddy looking things, but I also like those really bright in your face, like really like a neon yellow and almost like the gecko glows in a way, you know, especially when it's fired up. And it's, uh, it's kind of what I'm was going for with that. And I'm sure that's what Carlo was going for as well. And I mean, he's, he's producing great stuff too over there. I think most of those really, really nice ones we're holding back this year, and then we might be selling a few. Um, but they're, you know, I, I've, I've seen a few projects, people are crossing tangerines with bandits, and it's a tough project because they're they're contradicting things, you know. you got to really have great lines to start with, and it's going to take years of, you know, line breeding. But, you know, this is this kind of just hit the right way, you know, and that's what it is with leopard geckos a lot of the time. It's like you can have the project laid out in your mind as, you know, is this is how it's going to go, and it just doesn't go that way. And, you know, you just got to – usually when I see the first season where things don't really work out, I kind of scratch it and go somewhere else because it's just – it's one of those things. You, it, you can hit on something that's just unbelievable, even the first season. And, you know, it's something that you really thought was going to be awesome, you know, would be, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't, doesn't work out. You know, it's the way it goes. Most of the stuff doesn't work out, but you know, that's the fun of it and creating new things. And, you know, it's a, it's a combination of comp- combining all these genetics and, and different things and then also wine breeding and test breeding and stuff. And, you know, if you're doing it responsibly, where you're not just breeding random tangerines from Petco to random tangerines from so-and-so breeder, you're going to be able to, you know, be able to refine these things and create new things, and that's what's fun about it. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love the original lines and stuff. I, I, I'm trying to keep to as many original lines as I can, um, especially, like, the pure lines and stuff. But same time, there's got to be there's got to be movement forward as well, you know. Um so. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely uh you know on that track too uh, of trying to refine um you know getting more more color in, into into the bold bandits um and uh, and I think uh, you're definitely on the right track. Um, a lot of people for so many years, um, you know, all the tangerine lines were really bred um, for for hypomelanism as well. So mm-hmm. you know we spent years and years breeding out you know, all the spots on, on the leopard geckos. And, um, you know, I think a lot of people get discouraged on, in those projects, taking those tangerines and breeding them, you know, into the, into the bandits and other bold projects, because, you know, you're basically, basically taking a step backwards. But, uh, as you said, you know, it's something that's going to take years and years. And I really look forward to, uh, to seeing some of the different lines, um, that some of the different breeders are working on, um, now and to see what those are going to turn into in, in the coming years. Yeah, it's, it's kind of funny you're having, you know, Gourmet Rodent on next week because, you know, they, for a lot of these tangerines, these really nice-looking tangerines and these dark and muddy ones, uh, yeah, you know, most of that stuff, more than likely, at least some of it originated with Gourmet Rodent, you know, and they they have a lot of that stuff in there. You know, I'm not... I don't know exactly like what's pure and what's not. They're, most of the stuff is bred for the, the pet code market or the pet market, but you know, they, they do deserve respect in a way because they have a lot of those nice tangerines that we have nowadays that have been tested and, you know, your clean animals originally came from like their stock and some of the stuff they were breeding. So I mean, you can't, 
you know, they produce massive numbers of animals, of course, but, you know, in, in a sense, those guys that produce these massive numbers, they do get more odds as far as, you know, animals coming out, you know, different or unusual. So it gets to a point, though, like, even in my, where I'm at, where everything that comes out weird, which is constantly happening, there's always something that, come, that comes out weird, it's, like, you just can't test line breed or test breed everything, you know, it's just... You kind of just have to pick your battles, which in a way is tough, you know. I think in, like, ball pythons and stuff, at least you can see, like, most ball pythons, you can see the subtle differences that really make a big difference genetically, whereas leopard geckos, it's it's just, like, you get all kinds of stuff hatching from them. I mean, it's just random, you know, patterns. I mean, even wild types and stuff, you get random jungle patterns, which is normal, you know. It's just what happens. I've seen in every... Every species of wild type, except, you know, I mean, I got a kind of a weird hard wiki this year, which even says it's in there, but, I mean, this is my first year of being Fisky, so, I mean, it's just one of those things that's going to happen no matter where you go. So, I have Angam Honey that are just completely, you know, jungly patterns and weird stuff going on that are, you know, F1 animals, and it's just, that's what happens in nature, and even some with eye pigment, you know. I've got almost every wild type that I have, I have one or two that has, like, some type of eye pigment in them, you know, which is kind of a, a pain in the butt because it's just like, what do you do with those? And I'm not going to – I don't want to introduce more eye pigment genes out there. we got enough as it is, and, you know, it's nothing really different, but, you know, it's just maybe there's something hidden there. You, unless you're going to sit there and test breed for years, you're not going to find out. And and that's a, a pretty cool dilemma to have, you know, when you're producing so much cool stuff. Um, it's uh, it's got to be very, you know, satisfying and frustrating. But uh, but it's yeah, cool it's fun because you can take the really wild stuff and really go with that. Like you can really yeah, pick stuff that's kind of just crazy looking and you know go with that. And you know projects like I, I, I mean, most people know I've read those before, and it's just such a different different environment with or different, you know, animal with leopard geckos because you're just, you're just producing something new every year. I mean, it's a, the turnover rates every year, you know, you breed an animal, you get to breed it the next year for the most part. And, you know, boas are like four years yet away. It's just, I mean, the projects take forever. Even though boas, I mean, the market or the, you know, the animals that are coming out now are just unbelievable to me. You know, it's just amazing how... That's taken off in the recent years as well. You know, they just, hopefully they don't get you know regulated. I mean, they're I, I think they're cooler than the ball pythons personally. I I just love them more coming out of bows. They're just beautiful. But I mean, ball pythons are too as well. It's just that bows have always you know been that animal for me as far as snakes go. But yeah, leopard geckos. I mean. It's, Everybody's oh, it's so easy to breed and it's so easy to you know do this and that. They're not even a beginner species and stuff. And it's you know the genetics are you know is, the cool thing about the genetics is it's not just cut and dry either. It's not like oh you've got this animal you breed this to this and you're going to get this. It's you know I I think maybe ninety eighty ninety percent of leopard gecko genetics is history because everybody's asking, oh, what morph do I have? What do I have this? And I'm like, it doesn't really matter. You don't know the history on the animal or you don't know where the lines came from or you don't know if it's a, you know, they say, oh, is this a firewater? It's a tender, it's kind of a tendering looking, you know, 
rainwater. And it's like, no, it's not. It's totally something different, you know. I mean, I mean some people think, well, firewater is any tendering rainwater. It's not true, you know. Firewater came from, you know, tendering line by Ron Hatcher in the 90s, you know. It was line bred by Dan Lubinsky, you know. He, he took those line bred on. He combined them into raging red stripes and other things. But, you know, that tendering line is pretty old, you know. Same with, like, you know, Halloween House, the the line is pretty old as well. A lot of the stuff is pretty old. So, I mean, you just can't, I don't know, you just can't breathe any tangerine and breathe it to a, you know, a, a rainwater and be like, this is a firewater. So there's history behind all this stuff, which is in a way very cool to me. I like that side of it because it makes it, you know, anybody can learn recesses and, you know, this trip albino. This trip albino reduces 100%, you know, and anybody can learn that just like, any other genetic, but the history behind it's even better to me. So it gives it more work to it or more substance. I agree. Um, thank you very much, John. Uh, we're actually going to take our uh, mid-show break, and uh, everybody uh, hang in there and, and uh, come back with us for the second half of the show. Sure. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types, from white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, Contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. Rainbow Mealworms is the largest worm grower in the world and selling to the public since 1956. If you need the highest quality mealworms, superworms, and crickets for your pets, contact them at www.rainbowmealworms.net. Ron Tremper is the biggest contributor to leopard gecko morph making. Known worldwide for his amazing examples of living art, you can now download his Leopard Gecko Care app, his Morph Encyclopedia app called Leopard Gecko Pro, and visit his site, leopardgecko.com, to see where morphs are made. GiantLeopardGecko.com specializes in giant and supergiant leopard geckos with a focus on selectively bred, exceptional lines of many different morph combinations, including high-end African fat tails and crested geckos. With over 17 years of experience in herpetoculture, Keith Kiggins brings you quality, integrity, and value. Check out GiantLeopardGecko.com on the web and on Facebook. Supreme Gecko is a great source for crested geckos, day geckos, and other species, including micro geckos. Wally Kern is a top-notch breeder and gecko enthusiast. Visit SupremeGecko.com for his available animals and supplies. ABDragons.com is your source for the highest quality doobie roaches. Whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herbs, abdragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt reptile heat tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out abdragons.com online and on Facebook. All right, we're back, everybody. Um, I'd like to remind everybody uh, to go over to geckoforums.net to click on the get the uh, contest forum thread and uh, I started a thread um, 
my handle is slice of the jungle on geckoforums.net and um, apply there for the uh, $50 credit that John has donated for this evening's uh, episode and we'll be uh, announcing that winner next week on the show uh, with Mike Lehman. Uh, John, are you back with us? Yeah. Can you hear me? Yep, we got you. Um, so uh, do you have some more uh, of the uh, cool new projects that, uh, you know, you kind of mentioned, you know, you can't work with all of them, but uh, <laughs> any other cool ones uh, that, that you are going to work out uh, and hold on to uh, from this year that you want to talk about? Um, I, I have a lot of, I pretty much have most of the stuff out there. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's some probably big combo morphs that I don't do, which I'm trying to get away from the big combos myself. But, you know, as far as everything out there, I have, I have most of it. So I'm not, I mean, I have uh, the Sunset Sunrise stuff I'm really excited about. I'm breathing in some really awesome tangerines into that because, you know, I do believe it's wine bread. So I think we're just going to improve on that more and more. Um, I've, I've read in some wild type blood into that as well, which is going to improve the wine. So I think, you know, I've seen, so people can get a tendering, you know, blizzard or, or kind of like a tendering or hypo looking blizzard, but, you know, the, I think there's a future in these and I've seen a lot of blizzards, you know, since I've begun doing this and I think there is a future in that. So I think that's a pretty cool project going forward. It's a lot of, a lot of work for me, of, of course. I have a lot of animals that are involved in that, but you know, I think it's something that's going to do well. At least I'm going to, at least I'm going to put my mark on that, that going forward. And I don't know if I'll work with it forever, but it's fine. But I think might as well. Um, those I have the pastel raptors, which I, I, you know, there's a lot of controversy on that, and I, I love the pastel raptors. I think they're, I think they're awesome. But you know, I, I do think it is a wine bed personally myself. But I think it's also an awesome animal at the same time, which can have influence on other animals. So, um, you know, you can some of the stuff I'm doing, I'm crossing those into like bloods and stuff, and then I'm gonna recross the babies back together and see what happens. You know, because I think there is some influence there, similar somewhat to a white nail, but does have does have a little bit different effect. Um, especially if you breathe into, you know, Trump or stuff, it can have a really cool look to it. Um, I have, you know, I, a lot of some of the pure stuff. I have pure Murphy pattern with stuff. I'm working with some Jim Snow things, um, but a lot of radars, lavender radars. Um, of course, white and yellows. I have shot quite a few of those this year. Um, a lot of the, the bell white and yellow stuff, especially. Um, I have there's some rainwater white and yellow stuff. Um, I mean, a lot of stuff I, this year, honestly, I didn't breed quite as strongly as I I probably would have normally. I didn't, like, I, the market's a little soft, and I, I just kind of felt like, uh, I felt like I didn't need to produce that many animals. I had a few animals that were left over from last year. I'm not really interested in, you know, throwing them out there and getting rid of them right away. I like to hold on to them and sell them as they go. So I didn't produce quite as many this year. So some of the stuff, like, you know, I put the male in one time, and I kind of just let it go and let the female, you know, end out with it. And probably had more more dead eggs for sure. But at the same time, I, I'm, I'm overloaded. I mean, I got, I got you know, I got enough enough uh, enough babies last me last me quite a while at the right now. So I don't I don't even have any space right now. I'm already at when I when I get low on room, I have a setup where I, I keep them in 
you know, the seven inch deli cups and, and kind of go from there and I have a heat set up underneath them and stuff. But, you know, I'm already at that point, so I don't need to really produce anymore. I'm not a big wholesaler or anything. And I don't need to produce a ton. All my, all my, I don't do the shows either that are local really. It's just, I'm in Colorado now and the shows aren't the best. Maybe I'll do some in the future, but I feel like the time that I spent packing up, you know, 50 to a hundred geckos for a show, it's, if I just do a website update, I'll do better that way and just post animals for a little bit higher price and, you know, or what they're actually worth, you know, rather than just downgrading them and selling them for 25 bucks a piece or whatever it is. And then I do the, you know, I do a lot of the, the out, you know, the, the test breeding and I, I, you know, everybody, a lot of people know that I have a pet gecko section on my, my page, which the animals are, you know, 99% of the time, unless I note it on there, they're perfectly healthy and all good, and maybe healthier than some of the other ones because they're very outcrossed. So I always have those for pretty discounted prices. And if people are just looking for a pet that looks cool, some of that stuff, I mean, some of that stuff would be holdbacks if I knew the, the genetics were pure, for sure. So you can get some cool-looking animals if you want to just keep a pet project. And So I have a lot of those, and I mean, I work with all the albinos. I work with every... Every recessive out there, I have pure Murphys. I got, um, you know, I'm still working on a giant Diablo Blanco project, which, you know, hasn't, I'm running hiccups, you know, because I got, when I originally got some of the Diablo Blancos that I got, I got some uh, blazing blizzard, snow blazing blizzard head eclipse or possible head eclipses, which is a common mistake in the hobby. So, you know, it's test breeding that stuff out and figuring it out before I sell it as what it is. So, I mean, I'm I'm very picky. Like, I won't sell a, a Blazing Blizzard as a Diablo Blanco ever, unless I'm for sure about it. So, um, so yeah, a little bit of everything in that. I also work with, uh, you know, one thing I'm, I might diverge into a little bit is uh, the Aki or the, the dwarf monitor species from Australia. So, like, the... I have two groups of Dakis now, and um, I also have a, I haven't announced it yet, but I have a pair of Tilburenses, which are, you know, like one of my dreams as far as Aki monitors go. So, or I'm not Aki monitors, I'm sorry, it's dwarf monitors go. <laughs> so <laughs> those are, I mean, dwarf, if you, the best, honestly, one of the coolest reptiles I ever owned. I mean, my favorite reptile I've ever owned is probably a, a yellow Aki monitor, to be honest with you. If you set them up right, you set them up in a big trough setup or, you know, somewhere they have the substrate that they need, you know, at least 12 inches and some room to climb around and stuff. I mean, they're just such an amazing reptile to keep. And I'm sure, you know, I haven't kept all the doors. I'm not not as, you know, I'm not into that as quite as much as I am to the geckos and stuff, but just a, such a fun species to, to work with if you do it right. And, you know, I breed all my I breed all my feeders, so. Um, not really a problem to keep those monitors. Some people have problems because it's just so much food. But you know, I I breed I breed dubias and lateralis and um, mealworms now. So I, I produce I don't know. I think I'm close to a hundred thousand a week right now on mealworms. So I'm definitely producing enough. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's and good though. Honestly, having extra mealworms, like, you know, I always I've always gotten to the point where I bred too many feeders and I give them away to people. I sell them off and. I finally decided to stop doing that because the second I do that, then I run out and I have to start buying. And you know, now I'm just <laughs> forgetting. If I have an extra, if I pretty double what I need, then 
I just throw them back in and, you know, they, they produce more. And it's kind of working out for me in that sense. Just buying bags of wheat bran from the, the feed store and, and potatoes at Costco is a lot cheaper than purchasing a lot of feeders every week. So not necessarily an easy thing to start off with, but it, it, when you got the experience and you got the time and effort into it, you know, it finally can work out and I finally got it to that point. It saves me a lot compared to a lot of people have to buy every week, you know, a couple, you know, maybe a hundred, hundred fifty dollars in feeders every week or two. It adds up for sure. Definitely, and and also, you know, at the same time, another uh, big responsibility on your shoulders, on top of uh, all the others that you have going on. Um, we had a question uh, that somebody that uh, Sebastian posted um, when Dave posted up. Uh, about the show on Facebook, and he asked, um, how do you hatch your eggs so successfully? And I know that you spoke uh, on your first uh, Gecko Nation radio episode, you spoke about uh, your incubators, um, and you also spoke about the temperatures, but uh, do you want to talk a little bit about your the actual egg boxes or trays that you use, and uh, how do you keep the humidity in there? Um, over the years, I mean, it might even change from the last time I talked about it, but over the years, I've kind of realized that if you got a good gecko, leopard gecko egg, it's going to be pretty hard to kill that animal or to kill that egg. Um, the one thing that can really hurt your your egg or your hatch production, if they're good eggs to begin with, I think is keeping them a little bit too humid, um, which I think is a common mistake. We always well, I think, oh, if they dry out a little bit, they're going to die. And the thing is, I've, I've literally pulled eggs that were raisins out of out of nest boxes and um, put them underneath some uh, perlite and threw some uh, a mist. I added extra little mist on top to give them some more humidity, and they, they came back and lived. And, I mean, unfortunately, once I, I've, I've tested this out a lot because I write the condition of the egg on, on each label that I I put in the incubator so I actually know what I thought about the egg before I put it in because I wasn't always convinced that every like you know egg that felt like a water balloon was bad or every egg that was a little soft or dented was bad or even mold you know for that instance and I I started writing the conditions on them and over time I found that you know a lot of those eggs that you think are bad from the beginning end up being good and sometimes sometimes what it is is your moist hide might be a little bit too humid and it, it's really making that egg like a soft, leathery kind of, you know, a really, really kind of uh, not a hard shell. Leopard gecko eggs are soft shell, but they're just kind of like a, a leathery, like like water being still if you have too much humidity. And I put that out on the table when I'm doing my rats. I usually put out like one rack at a time of eggs so I don't get them confused. And, you know, by the time I get to them, they're already dried and hardened up quite a bit. So... I think when when the gecko hatches, like having that egg being a little bit on the harder side can make a big difference. You know, you get a lot of uh, full terms or, or babies that make it the whole way, but they can't get out of an eggshell because it's such a, you know, it's too moist and it's leathery. So they, they really, like, it's almost like they can't even get out of the thing. So when it's a little bit dried out or just a little bit, they can actually use that those egg teeth and, and cut through a lot easier. So it's a, it's a common problem, actually, with Hardwicky, which, you know, I think a lot of people think because it's a tropical species, they need to keep it much more humid. 
But in fact, the, the way we keep them in these little bellies or whatever we incubate them in is just, it's kind of a humid environment. It's really putting it in a very narrow amount of humid, humidity in this little thing. And if it dries out, it dries out quick. So the humidity goes down very quickly. But um, like say, for instance, hard wiki, you're almost like at 100% humidity when, when you have any humidity in those little bellies. So I think, like myself included, I kept them a little too moist, and a lot of the babies didn't get out of the egg because they were just, the eggs were leathery. You know, I, I found that over the years that the leathery eggs won't get out. Um, that being said, too, I, I mean, if you're breeding leopard geckos, well, you know, I don't know about every type of gecko, but as far as leopard geckos go, um, if, if you're breeding, you're going to have bad eggs. It's just a bottom line, you know. I, I didn't push my males in. Like, I didn't put my males in with the females quite as often this year. And so I probably had at least 30% of my eggs go bad. You know, whether they are, most of them were infertile at that point. But it just happens. And, you know, you can't get too worried about it. It's just part of the game. So, you know, you might, on a larger scale like I do, it's just, you know, you have one female, they'll lay 15 duds one year, and you'll have, you know, the next year they'll lay all perfect. So a lot of it has to do with that male actually, you know, fertilizing that female. If it happens, then they're probably going to get good eggs. And what I found, too, is that if you get a bad, like the male doesn't fertilize her right away and you try to put them back in with her, yeah, a lot of times it'll actually, you know, it'll work. But a lot of times, too, that female doesn't want to be bred for some reason after that. And doesn't become receptive, and she just keeps laying duds and will just continue. And it can be really frustrating, especially if you have, you know, a really nice project that you want to work on. Then um, I kind of just, I've gotten to the point, I'll throw the mail in there, and I'll keep them in for, you know, four or five days sometimes, and I'll take them out. And, and then if I get a dud egg from her again, I'll put them back in. And if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. There's no point in just keep going at it, because sometimes it's just not meant to be. But... Um, I've also used, you know, I've, I've tried all kinds of incubation methods. Um, I, I talked to Sean Holiday quite a bit. He's done a lot of work regarding incubation and stuff. And what I'm finding, too, and, and not necessarily everybody's method is going to work the same for everybody. It has to do a lot with the incubators that you're using. It has to do with, you know, um, your climate. Um, if you're a dry climate or a more humid climate. Um, like say for instance you're using if you're using like a ovibator, if you're gonna be using something like that and it's got the holes in it, especially if you don't cover up those holes, or if it has one of those fans in it, you're gonna be drying out the eggs quite a bit. If you if you use like a mini fridge or like one of the I convert fridges for the most part, like the slave refrigerators, they pretty much are airtight, so they they hold the humidity really well, so much that I even have to open them up almost every day to just let the humidity out of them because they get kind of, they almost get musty inside of them. You know, I, I one thing I did this year is I, I bought I bought like a seven foot tall like Coca Cola refrigerator off Craigslist and I converted it into an incubator and it's honestly the best best incubator I've ever used. It's it's pretty amazing actually. I put I put. I have three computer fans in there. I got like a huge, uh, I think it's like a seven or eight inch computer fan on the top. It's actually built into the vent, but it, it sucks in the air at the top. And then um, I use the actual top panel, so it sucks it down the top and down the sides. And I have like little movable computer fans at the bottom or little little DC fans at the bottom. 
And uh, I mean, I leave that incubator completely open, and it still runs on one percent on my herpostat, her, one to three percent on my herpostat, and stays stable the entire time. I can leave the, the 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 door completely open, and it still maintains the perfect temperature. That's like how uh, how perfect that incubator is. So, I mean, if you can put the you know the time and effort into that and buy one off of you know, Craigslist. I honestly think those display refrigerator incubators are the best thing going. You know, um, if you're just starting off, like a little elevator is fine. Um, preferably, don't get the one with the fan. The fan, if you don't rewire it, if you use the little elevators with with a fan in them, they actually will dry out your eggs pretty quickly because the fan just runs constantly. You can rewire those, and you can set them up where they only go on as the thermostat kicks on, which is you know the way to go if you're doing that. But um, just get the the regular, you know, elevator if if that's if you just have a small project. And another thing I've been doing too is I I I have three of those. I have the huge incubator. And I got two of the smaller ones that are the display refrigerator. And I I incubate, incubate some things that I want definitely to be a male or female in the different incubators to start them off with, and then I move them to the um, the eighty. Basically, I have the smaller ones. The the regular display ones. I have one set at about 89 or 89.5, and then I got one set at about 80, 80.5 or maybe 81 sometimes. Um, and then I would move it from that one to my big incubator, which was pretty much set, set at about 85, 85.2, and they would hatch out of that incubator. So I would move them. I would, if you, if you throw the males in the really high-temperature incubator, um, for the beginning, for the people that don't understand that, it's basically you know, the theory is that it's not even a theory. It's the fact that um, that uh, the males and females, the first portion of their incubation process determines the sex determination. And I mean, I've proved that out plenty of times on my own as well. So you move them from the higher or lower incubator to, um, in my case, I'd move them to the, the mid-range. The reason I do it, the female, I just like everything hatching out of the one. It bumps up the females to hatch a little quicker. Um, some think it makes the, the colors a little bit better. It, it could have a little bit of effect, not much, though, on that. And then I, I dropped the males down to the lower incubator just so they slowed down a little bit, too, because the males kind of sometimes, if you, if you throw them in like a 90 or 91-degree incubator for a long period of time, a lot of those males hatch out small and, you know, almost messed up in a way because they're just they, they, they're literally almost like 33 days or something you know in that incubating that's it they just develop way too quickly so what that does is it kind of just slows them down they've already determined their sex and then it just kind of slows them down a little bit and lets them kind of develop more of a normal pace or at least keeps them you know, keeps keeps like the thermal issues a little bit less when they they hatch out so but it's basically what I do. I mean, I've, I experiment all the time, and that's what you got to do in your situation. You know, I've used I've used the geos from Sean Holiday, and I still use them. I do like them. Um, if I have something that's like a really high end project, I'll, I won't throw it in there just because I feel like a lot of times if an egg goes bad, or even if an egg hatches in there, it bumps up the humidity really quick, and then sometimes sometimes there can be issues, you know, and you know sometimes the the mold can spread or. Whatever the case is, it can it could possibly kill the egg. I think the carbon dioxide in there, um, or the ammonia, even I don't know exactly what kills the other eggs, but it can. 
So if you got something like you're really excited about, just use the old perlite. Clean your perlite. Don't use just like the, the stuff you get at the you know hardware store or Home Depot or whatever. Clean it off, wash it out, make sure it's nice and clean. Um, dry it out, and then you know it's typically everybody's always said one to one on the weight ratio, but you know even maybe. 0.8 to 0.7 is a little bit better. I, I, I'd go with a little bit less humidity. If you see the eggs dinning, too, it's not a big deal. Honestly, those eggs, you throw a little, like, mist with just a couple drops in there, and they'll, they'll pump right back up. It's one of the adaptations of these, these eggs is that they can absorb a lot of moisture back and forth. So I think a lot of times we're on the, the more humid side or the too moist side when we're incubating. Mm-hmm. And that changed my series every year. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, that's definitely um, good a good uh, you know bit of information for uh, for newbies because uh, it is. I agree with you uh, that everybody's you know incubator is different and will react differently, and you kind of gotta figure it out a little bit on your own. And um, you know you you can't necessarily write up a, a perfect recipe that will work for every single person, uh, you know, who keeps leopard geckos. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so tell us, um, you know, you, you mentioned the, that you used uh, Sean's geos. Um, do you do the, the uh, air holes exactly as, as he describes? And, um, and do you also do the, the perlite and water as he uh, describes? You know, I've, I talked to Sean a while on this, this kind of stuff, and he has a lot of cool theories and stuff on it. And, Stuff that I think is actually probably valid and good for, you know, he's using like zeolite stones and stuff like that that are really, you know, I think I think things that are that might help the incubation process for sure. Honestly, I, I just kind of got to the point like I was mixing things, I was mixing, you know, calcite clay, like which is your like uh, super hatch kind of material. I was mixing that with perlite, and I was mixing you know, zeolite in there, and I was, missing, I was trying all kinds of things, and, you know, maybe to improve the eggshell density or help help improve the, because they do absorb a lot of things through that eggshell, um, which I do agree with. Um, but honestly, I, I, at the end of the year, I'm back to just using perlite. You know, I wash the perlite. I think that does make a difference. You know, I get, I get a huge bag at Home Depot, and I wash it really well. I bought the organic stuff online. I mean, I think we'll put like pretty much all the same for the most part, um, especially if you get the just the generic stuff without like you know, Miracle Grow or anything in it. Maybe you have no Miracle Grow in there. I don't think it really has, from what Sean said, I don't think it has really those chemicals that we're still worried about. But um, just perlite, honestly, is what I've I've kind of gone to again. I think going back to my original statement is like if you got a good gecko egg. As long as you just don't over, you know, dry it out or over, you know, get it too humid, I think you're fine. You know, the thing's going to hatch. They're, they're species to hatch, you know, for sure, or breed all together in, in that in in that sense. So I I I think you know perlite perlite works. Wash perlite, get it from your local hardware store, wash it clean. You know, you'll actually see when you wash it. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll share a little tip on that, too, is I put it in a big tote, and I, I put a whole bag of perlite, a huge bag. I mean, it's pretty light, so I don't know the weight, but it's, you know, if it was dog food, it'd probably be like 70 pounds. But um, I put that in a tote, and I, I 
take it outside with the hose and I just blast it with water and try to get it as clean as possible. And then I siphon it from the bottom because the perlite pretty much floats. And you'll notice at the bottom you'll get like all kinds of random stuff that like sinks to the bottom and all the dirty water. So I do a massive amount at a time. So I clean it off that way and I, I, uh, and I throw it in buckets. And then as I use it, I don't measure it out or weigh it out any, at all anymore. Um, I just do it by fill. And I, I use a, actually, I use a steam cleaner to pretty much to, to kind of humidify it a lot of times because I, I usually get it to a certain humidity in the bucket and I'll use a certain amount. And then by the time I get back to it, it'll dry out a little bit and I'll just take my uh, steam cleaner and I'll blast it a little bit and it humidifies it enough and you know, warms it up a little bit so it's not like a big temperature change. But, yeah, it's uh, just perlite fine. Please get it. You're not going to – you can't go wrong with it at least. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, for for people that just starting out, it, it's good to know that, you know, just keeping it simple, you know, will will definitely uh, get you started in the right direction. Um, there, yeah, you know, experiment and do things on your own too because my – everybody has a different method or a different thought on it or, I mean, it could be environmental factors, too. Like, in, I'm going to call that one like, pretty humid, and it could be totally different from somebody else, you know. And, um, I mean, I put air holes in my little deli cups. I might try it without the air holes next year, but every time that I put very, very small pinholes in it, like, like you know, some tack size pinholes, I didn't have good luck with that. Like, it got too humid on me. And maybe I'm just using too much moisture or whatever it is, um, but no matter what, I didn't have as good of luck that way. But, you know, I know, like Dom Ham- Hamilton, I know he uses, he throws no pinholes on it. And I know other breeders have done that too, where they don't they don't even put a hole on it at all, which does actually make some sense. If you can keep the, the actual perlite to the right temperature or the right humidity, not have it too humid, if you don't have those holes in it, you're not causing changes in temperature. And the changes in temperature are what cause the condensation inside the inside the deli cup so you know if you can keep that, that change in temperature to a minimum you're not going to have that condensation that's going to build up on the egg and on on the roof as much but in that sense he's also you know you gotta you gotta really uh you gotta have that humidity correct you know when you put it in there too i think and i'm going to do some more experimenting with that next year you know i'm just like everybody else i'm learning every year as well so i'm not going to say that i'm the ultimate expert on it I just think that we put a lot of emphasis on this. It's like some secret ingredient to it. And I've incubated, I've incubated leopard gecko eggs on pretty much everything. And almost anything that's going to hold the humidity right is going to hatch them no matter what. You know, it's pretty impossible to not to mess one up unless you got the humidity way too high or way too low. And the hard thing for us is that we don't have, you know, we don't we're incubating these little small tubs or you know, containers that don't really have, you know, it's such a, a small, small environment for that egg that it, it's, the humidity can be way too high or way too low very easily. You know, a lot of the big monitor breeders back in the day used to throw, throw big tubs of perlite and they just, um, you know, completely open and they'd throw them, uh, the eggs in, in the middle of it, you know, just like they are in the wild. And in a way, that probably would work better because it's just, you know, more forgiving when there's a humidity change, things adjust and it's slow to adjust. And I think I think a lot of that that really 
really can work. It's just, you know, with leopard geckos and stuff like this, and you're trying to document genetics, it's almost impossible to do that. So. Yeah, I, I think if you're if you're producing just a few eggs, and if say for instance you live uh, somewhere in a in a warm climate where maybe you keep your house air conditioned, you probably don't even need an incubator. Um, you could get away with you know maybe you have a closet, and uh, the top of the closet if you if you throw a thermometer in there and uh, check it periodically, you could probably get away with you know if that closet up at the top stays in the low or mid 80s you could get away with just keeping your, your egg cup up there. Um, and, you know, you don't have to really go crazy making a big incubator if you're just, uh, if you're just getting started. Um, yeah, I, mean, yeah I, I hatched two babies out of, out of their moist hides this year that I missed, you know. So, I mean, it just goes to show that you can have temperatures all over the place and adjustments, and, you know. It, it, it still will, these animals really don't need... It's not that hard to hatch them. If, you're, if your eggs are going bad, more than likely, more than likely they were bad to begin with. You need to throw the male back in with the female. So it's it's one of the most easy species to breed. It's, I mean, it, it's, if you can't breed a leopard gecko egg, you're pro, or a leopard gecko, you're probably going to have problems with almost everything out there. You know, <laughs> even even some of the uh, the geckonids, you know, have the hard shell eggs. It's just I mean, I crush at least an egg, <laughs> one out of like ten, five or six eggs. I'm crushing because my hands are too big and I don't see it. And it's, it's such a frustrating thing because you want to you get these eggs in good shape and sometimes you don't know and that's where the egg is and they don't make a little mound where you think it is. And it's like those eggs are so fragile that if you don't, like for me, I have to use a little spoon to even scoop them up. Otherwise, I just crush them, you know. There's, at least leopard gecko eggs are very forgiving in that sense where you can just pretty much you can hit them or knock them and they won't they're not going to break open you know even yep. you know even like the, the veranda eggs that you know that are soft shell too it's like if you knock them the wrong way a lot of times they go they go bad like it's, it's a little much more sensitive than gecko eggs and i think a lot of times you re-roll gecko eggs over and you spin them around and stuff they still hatch you know so as far as eggs go, if you get frustrated with leopard gecko eggs, you're probably going to get frustrated with pretty much anything else out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, uh, John, when I was starting out, I um, I was I was pretty frustrated uh, my first year or two. I was going with the old school um, fish tank incubator uh, using a, a fish tank heater and a few uh, gallons of water in a 10-gallon uh, fish tank. And it turned out, you know, learning later on, um, what I found out was that my egg box, I had the, the air holes on the top, and so mm-hmm. the humidity that would build up on the top of the, of the fish tank, because it was pretty much all sealed off, would uh, drip down into the egg box, and then my egg box was, you know, way, way too wet. <laughs> um, and then I went the opposite way, you know, my, my next year, and I basically just had a, a heat pad, and I, I stacked up sand on top of the heat pad in a fish tank and put, you know, you know, a few inches of sand to keep the egg box, you know, at the right temperature and, and was successful uh, with that. And so, you know, I basically went the opposite from being too wet to uh, pretty much on the dry side. And, and I was successful uh, just, you know, just by keeping the, the egg box, you know, by changing that egg box configuration 
and um, talk, you know, getting back again with my experience at the Gourmet Rodent, um, at the time that I worked for them, uh, they had incubator rooms for their, for their leopard gecko eggs. And, you know, so they'd keep the, the temperature in the room at, you know, say 82 or 83. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had all of their eggs in, um, in about 15-quart Rubbermaids that actually were food containers that would completely seal the air. And what they would do is they, would, they were using perlite at the time, and they had the exact measurement of the weight of perlite to how much water to add. And, I, you know, I, I can't tell you what it was. I, I don't remember. But um, they would bake the perlite to get all of the humidity and moisture out of it. So they were starting out with, you know, super dry perlite. And um, they would have somebody, I believe it was about once a week or once every two weeks, that would go through and just open up each container that, say, would hold 20 or 30 eggs. And they would just open it enough to get the, an air exchange so that the, the eggs were, were getting some oxygen in there. Because I've, I've heard about, um, you know, if you don't do that and all those eggs go to hatch at the same time, that they kind of... Uh, the, like the pressure will build up and when you open the the uh, egg container that some eggs will actually pop because uh, of the the difference you know from all the oxygen or whatever that they've used up um, but I, yeah, I haven't sure. I, go ahead I'm sorry no go ahead I was, I was going to talk about something oh, I was just saying I haven't heard that much about the leopard gecko eggs I've seen that with you know the monitors and stuff but I think I think a lot of that pressure differential is that these eggs get used to a pressure that, you know, a lot of them are usually eggs are buried underground and, you know, completely covered. So they're used to this outside pressure that is exerting on them all the time. And then when you put them, you know, most of us don't actually bury them. We put them like halfway in or whatever. And all of a sudden you, uh, you know, you pop open the pressure and it'll, it'll pop the egg. I haven't seen that too much with the leopard geckos, but, you know, Maybe that maybe that's true as well. You know, they they actually develop create like their own pressure, and you know, so they can if they're buried, they actually stay there and don't. You know, they they exert that outside force that keeps them from collapsing. Actually, yeah. You know, if if a rainstorm comes in and the weight around them, you know, increases just a little bit, they got to hold that pressure against that. So, kind of makes sense in a way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but. The the other the big difference is that you know we're keep you know if you have that container you know full of leopard gecko eggs chances are in the wild they they don't have you know they might be in a nest where there are a couple of clutches but they're not going to be as crowded as they would be and you know if you have your egg container filled up with as many clutches as it'll hold yeah well maybe we don't even really know if uh, they're not much of communal layers or not you know if they could. I could all kind of lay. I, I've heard about things where you know they've found a lot of babies all in one section, which maybe it's just for one female, or maybe that's you know a couple of females kind of come back to their original hatch site and you know laying at their same hatch site. Or you know we don't really know all these things about them, so you know maybe maybe that's the case that, that they kind of they kind of stay isolated because there's a lot of variation. You know, leopard geckos are literally every every mountain you go over. It's, like uh, they they have a different you know different look and a lot of the DNA tests that are they're out there now that I've seen at least with Angamondi because that's what we can actually 
have some information on due to the, the country situation, but a lot of the, those animals are showing to have completely, you know, their DNA is, you know, they're, they're really you know, a lot of crystal species out there that are just, you know, hiding within all this stuff, you know, and you don't even realize these animals might look pretty similar, but they've, they've been separated for so long, and even though they've kind of developed the same way, or they might look similar. The DNA tests are showing that they're very different. One example is the Kazakhstan uh, Angamanyu. They're finding, you know, like a highland form and a lowland form, which Kazakhstan is where the, the type of locality was um, documented or, or uh, described as. And the DNA tests that have shown between those two animals, they're showing that they're very, very different animals, almost like they're different from different clades. So, I mean, we... <laughs> kind of crazy. Uh, you look at all these going to new species and you're like looking at uh, uh, like the hind and the recent filter eye and all these species that are, they look very similar but they really are probably very different, you know, very, you know, very far separated. And, you know, who who knows how the speciation exactly occurred, whether it's actual isolated, you know, from, from um, physical isolation or what it, if it's actually occurred from within a group or how it, how it is but maybe these animals if these animals just stick to one spot for the most part and they rarely venture out too much and you know it's the reptiles they can interbreed quite a bit before we have really problems with with that so probably all that's needed to keep the healthy the species healthy and alive but anyway <laughs> and and definitely something cool that if if we could go uh check them out and be very interesting to see. Um, I know there certainly are other uh, species of, of geckos that, um, you know, use communal nest sites or uh, a female will use the same nest site clutch after clutch. Um, you know, it's definitely been documented in, in some of the day geckos, and I'm sure it happens in many more species than we know of. Um, John, do you want to talk a little bit about some of the uh, leopard geckos that you have available right now? Um, I, sure. I, I, I just kind of, a lot of people, um, send me emails and they always ask, so do you have this or that available? And honestly, I probably have something in my collection that's there. And what I pretty much do, cause it's, it's very confusing even for me when you have all this, these animals and you're like not thinking about every project that you have. It's really hard to know exactly what I'm going to have available coming up. So like some of the stuff I'm just waiting to see how it turns out. If it's, something I want to hold back or if it's, I don't have a lot of one thing, I might hold it back or, you know, so the best format is just my website. Like I, I pretty much like I go through and when I post updates to my website, it's an all day event and I really go through things and I think about each thing where I'm going to post for sale and what I'm not. And that's really when I decide where I'm uh, posting for sale. And I mean, I take a different approach than a lot of people. I realize that because a lot of people, don't uh, keep their website updated and they just, you know, go off of emails and go off of who's hitting them up about whatever animal at the time. But I kind of, I keep that in mind as well. If somebody is messaging me about a certain animal, I keep that in mind for sure. Um, but my real decision comes down when I, when I do the website update. So um, I've done my first one or my first major one for the, this season um, as a lot of people know, I have a very late season, so most of my geckos are to come. Um, so I think I'm going to be 
doing a website update this next week or so. I should have, I mean, I don't like to put exact dates on it. I'd like to get it done in the next couple of days if I can, but, you know, don't hold me again. Hold it to me. <laughs> it's one of those things, I mean, like you said, if you're taking pictures and, you know, trying to take nice pictures and trying to, you know, I mean, every gecko that I put on my website, I take, like, at least five to six pictures of that same animal, you know, and I'm taking a picture, I'm taking a picture of the actual label of the animal. I'm taking a picture of the weight. And then I'm taking all those pictures of the animal. So, I mean, by the time I'm done with a website update, I'm doing like seven, 800 pictures, you know. And even if I'm posting, you know, 60, 70 animals, it's still a lot of picture take. And, you know, it's getting, you know, affecting out all the animals and everything. So it takes a while. But, you know, I, I think the website, I keep my website pretty up to date on what I have, unless you're looking for like a specific species or something. But, you know, or really, you know, specialize more for something I'm not going to have a lot of. I mean, for the most part, my website's going to be updated every couple weeks, especially this time of year with what I have available. So um, I have a lot of really nice techniques right now available. It's, uh, like I said, the market's been a little soft, but, you know, that's this time of year. In a couple months, it's going to be, you know, the way it goes every year. You know, no matter what the economy is, there's always people looking for geckos year-round, so... You know, in a couple months when nobody has much available, it's going to be you know, some pickings at that point. So there's a lot of cool stuff, and I'll have a lot of stuff coming this next week or so. So if you're looking for something specific, just, you know, keep, I always post, you know, if you're looking for something really specialized, I'll, I'll email you or something about it. You can email me about it, and I'll email you back about it. Or if you just want to, you know, check and see what's available at the time, you know, I pretty much keep my Facebook updated with that. So you can... Go to my Facebook page if you already like if you already like that page and you can click get notifications. That way you're not subject to the Facebook algorithm and you're sitting there never getting like half of my updates. You know I don't post a lot, so I'm not going to over fan your your wall. But when I do post, it's usually a really nice picture. Or it's a it's a good update. You know, or it's like my website update. So usually don't have to worry about me spamming anything. So. It's okay to it's okay to subscribe or, or get the notifications on my page. But, yeah, and, a lot uh, of stuff available. <laughs> do you want to talk about any of the uh, different uh, species of geckos you work with? Uh, anything you want to add now that we're getting to the towards the end of the show? Um, yeah, I mean, if you're looking for anything kind of obscure, I have a lot of cool things that are available. Um, I don't think I'm going to be, you know, getting too many more. I'm already at that point where I'm, in, you know, already getting to my limit as far as that stuff goes. But, um, yeah, I, I work with a lot of cool species. I try to work with species that are, you know, very hardy. And, you know, typically that's a desert species. Um, you know, most desert species are going to be easier to take care of than, you know, anything that's tropical. Um, so most of the stuff I work with is pretty simple. Um, you know, you really can't get much easier than most of the stuff. So even like, you know, I, I got my first Adira from you, actually. I mean, I can't even believe how easy that species is. It's one of the simplest species there is possible. I've never had one die on me till this day, you know, of any uh, one of the Adira species that I carry. So I have, you know, Robusta and I have Monilus and um, Casanale, the Amels that I got from you originally. And then I mean, I, I don't think you can get anything simpler than that. But 
You know, even Latinos are they're much more difficult than those. <laughs> and but, it's funny those those Castle Nowies, um when I put together the the breeding group that I had, my my whole thing was uh, that I was trying to get some diversity because I I was thinking that they were you know all from you know Australia, which you know nothing gets exported out of Australia, so wherever yeah. they came from, they were probably from very limited stock. Uh, in terms of genetic diversity. Plus, on top of that, they were a recessive morph, so they were inbred on that side of it. So I kind of assumed, like, oh, these things are, you know, going to be pretty, you know, inbred. I'm going to have to try to get some from different people. Even though they're from different people in the U.S., they're probably all related. And it turned out, I had the same experience that you just talked about, that they're super hardy, and all of, you know, all the babies, you know, did, started off great. And uh, it's just unbelievable, you know, working with a species like that. Yeah, as long as, long as you got a, a secure, you know, terrarium or whatever it is, I don't think there's a way to go wrong with those guys. I People always ask me about their care, and I'm like, I think when I first talked to you, I asked about their care too, what you did. And literally, I don't know what's wrong because there's nothing that I've done that I can you know, they haven't thrived with, you know. I don't try to do anything bad with them, but I've kept them in, I've kept, I raised six the babies in six four tubs, just like my leopard geckos now, just as long as they're tight fitting, because they, they are pretty good escape artists, but besides that, there's nothing that can save them. I mean, they're, they're seriously probably the, the easiest or the most strong hardy species out there, you know, and maybe that's, you know, oh, obviously, probably you had the genetic diversity that helped out for sure. But I think in general, I mean, all the adorabs seem to be that way as well for the most part. But I have now. I've since gotten the other ones. But definitely, you know, probably as easy to breed as leopard geckos. It's probably pretty much the same process. But, you know, keeping them is, I mean, I, I just do, I just do roaches in a, in a, um, in a bowl for them and, you know, I don't even have to. I I go through there and maybe miss them, you know, once every week and a half, and feed them every once a week and a half, and they're doing unbelievable that way. So <laughs> a lot easier than some of the stuff for sure. But yeah, I think I told you when when you first got them from me, just I basically said just keep them exactly like leopard geckos, and maybe keep uh, yeah. the moist hide in there for them, and and they'll do fine. And uh, they they certainly are uh, a really cool species if someone's looking to. Something that keeps leopard geckos is looking to get into something different. They're uh, they're definitely an awesome species to uh, to try out next. Yeah, yeah, great starter species. Maybe even easier than leopard geckos. I mean, there's a starter just to keep them secure. And then you can't hold them quite as much as a leopard gecko. They are a little bit more jumpy and fast, but they don't really won't bite or anything. But definitely, definitely, you know, something that's just going to try to get away from you. Um, they do climb and stuff, but yeah, as as very easy beginner species. I mean, there's a lot like like that. They're pretty simple, but I mean, I've never usually if you don't have the humidity right, like you know, either too moist or too hot or too uh, dry, you'll have some issue with shedding. No matter what species it is, it seems like you know I don't have the experience like say that you know like Boone has, but for for what I've I, I, you know all the species that I've kept and all the different genuses that I kept, it's just I think they're the simplest of all, <laughs> so far at least. At least the commonly kept stuff. So you know, you can't really. You know, even though young babies, you know, I've never had a shedding issue with them. 
never. You know, if you don't feed them for a couple of days, they they just chill and they wait for their, when they're ready to eat. And when they do, they they do well. They never get too skinny. A little weird. They're just easiest thing out there, pretty much. Anyway, too much on them, but. <laughs> and uh, any other species you want to mention that you'll have uh, that you'll be posting in in your next uh, availability update? Um, actually, I'd probably be selling the other thing I got from you, which is the Coleonis variegatis. Uh, I have a few of those babies from this last year um, that I'll probably be posting. We have like that really high white form. You know, it's similar to. Um, there's a couple other people that have like this kind of like really white. We don't know if it's genetic. I haven't really been able to figure that out myself either, but um, definitely really cool looking. They're not as, you know, yellow or they don't have the, the, the markings quite as like normal Vergatis, but definitely some of them really are really white and hypoed out. So they probably have a couple of those soon that I hatched out this last year. And then, you know, I got, got the others from here. So hopefully... I, I tried breeding them this year. We'll see. I don't know if they're going to produce anything this year. I might just, I haven't gotten any eggs from the ones I got from you this year, but yeah, they have some of those and got a pretty big group now. Though, so. Yeah, they're definitely a, another uh, prolific, um, easy to care for species uh, once you have experience with leopard geckos. Uh, John, do you have a few more minutes? Uh, we're actually coming to the end uh to the to the live show um we're going to go into the recorded segment and um okay. if you have a couple more minutes we're just going to keep going and uh and before we sign off um i okay. it, it's funny that you mentioned uh the the variegatus uh, at the last white plane show um i found just before the show i found out that uh jamie of uh, razor razor sharp reptiles uh was working with some um, mm-hmm. So I was anxious to uh, to go talk to him about you know where they came from and and stuff like that. And I went to talk to him at the sh- you know as soon as the show started, and it, it turned out that um, his actually came from me through another person. And, oh, wow. uh, and um, Rob of uh, Empire Reptiles also um, was was working with some that uh, that had come from a person that they came from me, and then. Uh, and now, basically, um, Rick of uh, Basement Exotics, um, who's always at the White Plains shows, um, he has both of their colonies of uh, variegated. So if uh, if you ever wanted to do a trade, you know, he's hatching out some of the, the cool white ones, too. Um, but there, there's something, uh, you know, that that that's definitely cool to work with, and it'd be cool, um, you know, if more people started working with him that we'd... Uh, figure out, you know, really what's going on with uh, with their genetics. Yeah, I probably need to get, a, you know, just kind of your normal average one to kind of figure it out because, you know, I mean, I don't, I just don't have the, I, I don't think I've been paying attention quite enough to it. And there seems like there's something there. They definitely have um, some of them that pop out really different than the others, you know. Um, they're all pretty white, though. You know, they all pretty much don't have any yellow in them at all from, you know, their whole life. Even when they're adults, they really don't have much yellow at all. So I, I know Jordan Russell's got some, um, too, that are kind of similar. Actually, some of them look like clones, and then he has a new morph, or one that he's calling a new morph that almost has, like, a little bit of a, I don't know, and leopard gecko 
terms, almost like either white and yellow or enigma kind of look to it, kind of like blotchy looking, like weird colors to it and stuff. So he has he has some that are pretty cool looking too. So I mean, it, I've seen, I've also seen some too. There was a guy that was selling some on Fauna that were like wild caught recently that were they're almost similar to ones that we got, and they did come from Nevada. So I'm kind of wondering if they were like the same either the same locality or kind of like the same population of them in a way. I almost wanted to get a couple of those and see what happened, but, you know, it's just too much stuff. <laughs> and, then, and then you have more and more questions uh, and, and less yeah. answers. <laughs> yeah, and then it's more wild, more wild cops. I don't know if I just wanted to just didn't pull the trigger on it, you know, it's one of those things. But, yeah, I think they do. it does happen in other places, but they're definitely, whatever it is, it is cool. You know, as even if it developed separately in other places too. But I don't know if they would consider a new morph or even new species or who knows. But yeah, those are all all those stuff that I got from you was doing good. So and I have uh, I have a couple of I mean, you're talking about the other species, that's kind of the subject you're on. It was uh, I have like the Pacadaco sky sensors. Um, I have uh, what else do I have? <laughs> I got too much. I got a lot of the going so that's now. I've got a few of the rare ones there, not so much the common stuff, but I got a lot of the rare stuff at that. Um, I have the, uh, oh, what else? Um, the Dacos, uh, Rispoli, which are pretty cool. I got those from John Boone. Um, the one that I'm really excited about is the, I'm probably saying this wrong, and forgive me if I am, but Hematricone trachinitis, which is um, from the island of Socotra, off of the, Africa, the Horn of Africa. And there's basically two gecko species that have developed off of that Horn of Africa. They're really, they kind of just developed in their own world. It's like a, it's almost like a desert in Madagascar, I guess would be the way I like to call it, but really like that species. And I'm, I'm hoping to get the other one. Um, I think it's pronounce Rebecca I or Rebecca. Um but hopefully I get that that species going in the future too. But I mean the it uh tricky Ryan is just just an awesome, awesome little gecko. I really love them. Glad I got them. You know. So hardy, very strong little species. Um, I posted some pictures on my Facebook if you wanna see it, but um I got those I got the Adura, I got um Hitsaconic's Taylor Eye which is uh, um, uh, West or East African area like Somalia. Um, very difficult species to keep, so um, hopefully I have success with them. But who knows? Um, yeah, all every species, every species in the genus Euglossus. So that's that's cool. First person in the U.S. to have that, at least that I know of. But you know, I have all the subspecies and every. Everything that I have, I have a couple different lines of it for the most part. You know, I have probably one of the most diverse collections or, you know, bloodlines of Hardwicky. I have many different bloodlines in that. I got, um, I got unrelated Fuscus. I got uh, Angermania. Hopefully I'm going to get a couple of new provinces in the future. Uh, But, yeah, those are really cool. I mean, that stuff is going to be really popular in the future. I guarantee it. You know, Angermania are just, they're massive. I mean, they're just such a different animal. You know, they look 
kind of like when you see a picture of him, you think, oh, that's a, that looks like a leopard gecko, or you wouldn't know. But, you know, people that I've invited over that have actually seen them in person, um, they're just like, oh, my gosh, like, I got to have that thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> just, the, I mean, you think about it, what is a normal leopard gecko hatch out at, like, three grams? The, you know, a good size one's three to four grams. Um, uh, average Aaron Devonia hatches out, like, 10 to 12 grams. You know, <laughs> so just shows you there. I mean, you just can't even believe how big big they are when they hatch, and they got these heads that are, you know, almost scary. I've never been bit by one, but I'm kind of scared by it. <laughs> I hand feed one of my nails sometimes, and it's just like that thing has, you know, some bite force behind it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, why don't you talk a little bit about your uh, Afghans? I uh, you have a couple different bloodlines of those, and they're. Definitely, uh, yeah. you're hatch- hatching out some that I, I look completely different than uh, some of the other lines that are in the U.S. Yeah, Ebuffer's um, macularis afghanicus, which is um, kind of like the Afghan, or it's, it's uh, like the, for people who don't know, the majority of macularis or our typical leopard gecko comes from the Pakistan area. So macularis is known to extend from a little bit into Iran, like the eastern parts of Iran, all the way to the western parts and northern parts of uh, India. Uh, so that's your typical macularis. Now, the, all the subspecies of the macularis, I mean, it's kind of, it's one of the big question marks. We don't, is there's not enough info about it. The only person that really kind of described subspecies in there was Bornier in 81, and he kind of didn't really, you know, it, a lot of those things were kind of, regarded as not really verifiable or just really maybe not actual different subspecies, maybe they're just localities, if anything. So, but Afghanicus is definitely something different. It's, uh, you know, it, it's it's from uh, the areas in like, uh, like above northern Pakistan to Afghanistan and the mountains there. And it's a smaller thing, a smaller, I almost feel like it should be a species, and maybe in the future it'll be, you know, classified as that, but definitely, definitely really cool. Um, you know, it's a subspecies, but definitely a cool one to work with. And, you know, they do pretty good groups compared to some of the other other ones. They, I, I've, Every group that I've ever kept for those has done pretty well together. Um, I've heard that they've been kind of communal in the wild, so maybe that's why. Um, they stay very small, like females, you know, I believe females anywhere from 30 to 35 grams, no problem. Um, especially the ones that haven't been line bred in the U.S. for that long. You know, a lot of, a lot of times, in, or line bred in captivity that long. A lot of times we get these things in captivity and everybody wants to, you know, line bring them to produce more of them, which kind of takes away from what they naturally are. But um, I have some that are F1 from Europe that are uh, pretty pretty cool little geckos they're very small and you know dark and yellow so they have some cool a cool look to them um i have i'm gonna have three lines here in a couple weeks so i'm getting another well not necessarily a new line but a new group of them that are not related to the u.s line so i have pretty good genetic diversity on that um yeah they're 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 fun they're you know there's some of the guys in you know the uk kind of kind of uh, attack them a little bit, saying they're not legitimate. I don't feel that they're not legitimate. I think a lot of times that some of these guys in the U.K. have seen one 
locality of these species or, you know, maybe one description of them, and they kind of, they're, they're pretty set in their mind about how that animal should look. And if you have anything different, which, like I said before, could be, you know, an animal over the next mountain range could have a different phenotype, and these animals, you know, they could look a little bit different depending on exactly where they were collected. Just like our coleomics that we got from Clark County, they have a different look. So, in a way, like Turkmanicus, I feel the Turkmanicus, and I think the Afghanicus are definitely something different. I don't see how people have faked that, and I don't see how people have faked the Turkmanicus. They're in captivity. The Turkmanicus in captivity might be a little bit closer related to the macularis, like touch species, maybe like an intermediary, but the you know, the ones that they caught originally, I have some animals that look just like it. Even, you know, it's just, I think, I think in, in captivity too, like a lot of times the first generation looks completely different than the wild caught, you know, sometimes. Like just being in captivity, different diet, you know, supplementation that's really good. They're not getting, they're not eating anything that's, you know, what they eat in the wild. You know, they're probably not getting exactly the same minerals, different hormonal levels, but, you know, just the, the look of them just a little bit. I got some anger on you that I, I've seen pictures of the wild cuts in the wild when they're actually, you know, first found, and they don't look anything like what the, the ones in captivity look like. So it kind of goes to show that you can't, you know, be so strict on it that, you know, uh, you dismiss every Afghanicus that doesn't look exactly like your, your the original interpretation of it was, so. It's very, it's just so, you know, unless DNA can really be utilized and we can really study each population and really know exactly where things are, we're probably not going to know exactly on some of those things, um, especially like the macular subspecies. That stuff is really big question mark on it. I don't, I, it's all pure, but it's just, you know, where exactly did it come from and, you know, which you got to be skeptical. You know, you just can't take anybody's word for it. Otherwise, you're just getting some Jim's knows that somebody's telling showing you a spontaneous, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. They kind of go, you, you just, everybody everybody wants to have, you know, a new line of Montaigneus or whatever it is, but it's really, who, who do you, unless you were there in the wild collecting them or you know the biologists that collected them or you have that documented info, you don't know for sure where it's from. And the funny thing is, is like, a lot of stuff, nobody even knows where they're supposed to be from. You know, Borner's, Borner's descriptions were very vague about it, and, and really, you know, he he has he basically would travel around Pakistan, and every time he you know found a leopard gecko, he called it a new subspecies, or you know, he had some that are uneven described that were, you know, that that he said were were he or he described them, he just didn't actually label them a new species, so kind of. Big question marks everywhere about that whole situation. But all right, John. Well, thank you very much. We're getting to to the end of the show, and uh, if you wanted any closing remarks, you can go ahead and say it. And uh, I just want to remind everybody that um, if you want to get entered into the fifty dollars credit toward one of John's animals, uh, go to geckoforms.net and uh, go to the contest uh, forum. And page and uh, and enter your name uh, in reply to the thread um, that's titled John Scarborough fifty dollar credit Gecko Nation Radio. Cool. Well, 
Thanks, Tim. I appreciate it. I'm glad uh, glad you were able to host. It was fun. And, uh, yeah, anybody that has any questions about this stuff, I don't really know what else to say at this point, but if you're interested in some of my geckos or just see some information, um, check out my Facebook page. You just type in Gecko Boa Reptiles or um, my website's geckoboa.com. I do some YouTube videos. I will be picking up the YouTube videos again soon, I promise. It's just this time of year has been crazy, so I'm, I'm starting to get caught up again, so. And that that will be that will be going again. But yeah, thanks for listening and thanks for hosting. Thank you, John. Uh, you're a great guest. And um, go ahead, Dave. You can play the uh, sponsor plugs. All right. Thanks, John. Take care. All right, uh, Tim. Uh, great job tonight, by the way. And uh, hang tight. We'll do uh, the closing remarks together. Let me play the outro. All right. Thanks. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. The jazz music you heard tonight was generously donated and created by Jeremy Turgeon of J&D Reptiles. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the great musical pieces. You can check out Jeremy at J&D Reptiles on YouTube and on Facebook. And a very special thank you to our news anchor, graphic designer, and audio tech, Steve Barker. All the graphics, audio sponsor plugs, and music overlays were assembled by Steve. Check out Steve on YouTube at BC Barker Creations. He has some terrific videos for the herb community with amazing geckos and snakes. Please support the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance and U.S. ARC. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to support both of these organizations. Please donate to U.S. ARC so that they have the funds needed to legally protect pet owners' rights nationwide. You can donate to the U.S. ARC Legal Defense Fund at www.usarc.org. If you would also like to learn about advocacy and how you can take action on a state and local level, please subscribe to the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance newsletter and blog at www.usherp.org. So, Tim, what do you think? Uh, how do you feel about uh, how you did tonight? I can't hear you. All right. Well, in any event, I think it was a great show. Sorry about that, Dave. Guys... I'm back. That's okay. How did you? How do you feel like? Uh, how do you? How do you feel about how you did? Uh, I think it went pretty well. I think um, if we were to do it again in the future, it'd be easier if I do the switchboard because. Uh... It was uh, that was a little challenging uh, doing that part, but um, I think the show went really good. Uh, John's a, a great guest, and uh, it'd be great to have him on again to talk more about uh, some of his wild types. Uh, seems like he's really excited about that stuff, and um, you know, it'd be cool to, to get another update from him in a couple months when he's done uh, with it, with this breeding season. Yeah, of course. Well, we'll definitely have him back. He's definitely a great. Uh, interview anytime. But I think you did a great job tonight, Tim. I hope uh, the listeners enjoyed it. Um I'd like to definitely mix it up again in the future and, uh, you know, I give, uh, you know, you the chance to bring a new personality to the interview, which is cool uh, to mix it up. So uh, I just want to thank you and thank all the listeners and uh, we're going to sign off for the night. I'm going to go through the sponsors and I'll let you go, Tim. Um, and uh, you'll be back on next week, right, with me, co-hosting? 
I will. And uh, everybody have a good evening. And uh, tune in next week for Mike Lehman of the Gourmet Rodent. And uh, hopefully we'll get an update on that really cool um, gecko that they have posted on the, on their Facebook page. Uh, do you remember what the, the name of it frog. is? Uh, yeah, the Lemon yep. Frost. Um, yes, yes. I know. I know. It was uh, the the first one was a female, and uh, you know, hopefully, um, she produced this year, and we'll get an update from them on that project. But uh, tune in cool. next week for that. Awesome. All right, Tim. We'll be. We'll see you next week. Thanks again. All right. Have a good night, Dave. You too. Later. All right. I just want to uh, thank my sponsors. Uh, the show would not be possible without our amazing sponsors. First and foremost, Dale's Bearded Dragons. Dale's Bearded Dragons has been with us since the beginning. They're the biggest uh, reptile supply distributor at almost all of the Northeast Expos, ranging from Maryland all the way to New Hampshire now. All right, so if you guys need reptile supplies, exoterra, heating, lighting for your dragons or geckos, whatever it is, supplements, they have anything. So uh, they're also now carrying uh, FlexSlot reptile heat tape. Uh, so it's not the imitation, it's the good stuff, good heat tape, safest uh, heat tape in the world. So check them out at dalesbeardedragons.com. They're also on Amazon, and uh, they're going to be putting together a brand-new website soon, so that'll be cool. All right, abdragons.com is huge. They're the biggest, uh, probably the biggest, one of the biggest and best suppliers of dubia roaches, uh, just very high-quality dubia roaches, uh, fed very nutritious food. Uh, great prices. Use the code GECKO, all in caps, at checkout and get 5% off your order with AB Dragons. Check them out at abdragons.com. Uh, you just heard John Scarborough from Gecko Boa Reptiles. Uh, fantastic breeder, amazing animals. Definitely check them out, geckoboa.com. Take advantage of the uh, contest over at Gecko um, Forums tonight. All right. Uh, Supreme Gecko, Lolly Kern. Uh, Lolly Kern specializes in all kinds of micro geckos, day geckos, cresties, and even some leopard geckos. So check out supremegecko.com today and check out some of his amazing stuff. Also has supplies for the animals too and food. All right, Ohio Gecko. Thad uh, Uncaffer also runs gecko forums, uh, but his gecko operation is ohiogecko.com. Has some fantastic tangerines, uh, snows, fat tails such as Starburst, which is his original uh, fat tail morph. Uh, some really cool stuff. So check out OhioGecko.com. Uh, if you're feeding your insect-eating reptiles, you want to feed them uh, the best uh, insects that you can at the best prices, and that's at Rainbow Mealworms, RainbowMealworms.net. Biggest worm farm in the world. Jillian Spence is a doll to deal with, and she's been very, very good to the reptile community, especially the gecko community. So check out rainbowmealworms.net. All right. And if you're shipping your animals uh, in the U.S., you're going to want to ship them at the best rates and get the best customer service and know that your packages are being watched and monitored. So uh, the best place to get your FedEx labels is going to be Reptiles Express. Uh, Check them out, reptilesexpress.com. If you're new to shipping, ask for Debbie, and she will teach you how to do it. It's very easy. Nothing to be afraid of, folks. Uh, let's see, Ron Tremper. Very happy to have Ron Tremper on board. Uh, Ron Tremper basically gave us the gift of leopard geckos, and uh, a lot of us breeders have been able to uh, develop our own lines off of his original work. 
um, definitely one of the pioneers of leopard geckos in the United States, the biggest pioneer. So I uh, just want a big thank you to Ron Tremper for everything he's done for leopard geckos over the last 30 years and for herpiculture and for sponsoring our show. Check out leopardgecko.com and uh, see where morphs are made. Also, he's got some incredible apps such as Leopard Gecko Pro and Leopard Gecko Care and a few other ones. So uh, definitely check that out. All right, next is giantleopardgecko.com. Keith Kiggins uh, has a code for you. It's GNR2014. You get, I think it's 20 or 25% off any gecko until September 30th. And uh, Keith was on our show a couple weeks ago uh, breeding really nice leopard geckos from Ron Tremper stock. And uh, he's been breeding good-sized giants, and his site is the name, giantleopardgecko.com. So check him out. And uh, let's see. Oh, and if you're feeding your insect-eating reptiles, uh, you're going to want to feed your insects high-quality food. So make sure you use MS2 Premium Insect Chow, made with vegetable proteins, no dog food, or chicken mash in there. So make sure you go with MS2 Premium Chow. And last but not least, Longhorn Geckos. Daryl and Kate Burton are specializing in fine leopard geckos. Really select examples uh, from Ron Tremper, uh, John Scarborough, myself, and uh, a few other sources. So if you're interested in really nice select bred morphs such as high-quality bandits, tangelos, pastel raptors, uh, extreme emerines, definitely check out Longhorn Geckos on Facebook, and uh, their website will be coming soon. So, yes, awesome. All right, so those are my awesome sponsors for the show, and uh, we wouldn't be able to do it without them. And uh, to all my awesome listeners, uh, hope you all have a great night, and uh, we're going to do it again next Sunday. And uh, thank you for your support. Appreciate it. Until next time, folks. Later. Uh, uh.